podcast this week, Reacher said nothing. But luckily, his creator Lee Child isn't so tight-lipped as he and his brother Andrew talk about the latest Jack Reacher novel. How exciting. All that and more on the movie podcast that is desperately hoping that news of a miracle cure is true. After all, we need something to bail us out of this seemingly hopeless situation, folks, but I fear it may be too late. I don't think anything can be done about the Irish accents in that Wild Mountain Time trailer. (laughs) (laughs) Hello, pod. I'm Chris Hewitt, so I am, and welcome to the Empire Film Podcast. Ah, Jesus, Begara, maybe half an hour in heaven before the devil knows you're dead. My word. That's a belt. Yes. (laughs) I'll introduce you guys first, Mm. uh, and then we can chat about that and a great many things we will. This week, I'm joined by three colleagues, or three colleagues, such little cunning. Um, We're joined by our geek queen, Helen O'Hara. Look at her. Jesus, Uh, walk around. How are you? How are you? All the way from Connemara, it's Helen O'Hara. How are you? Uh, I'm very well, thanks. Ah, he's brilliant, brilliant. Uh, he, he joined the podcast, he rode in on a horse down the middle of the street, so he did. It was a man worm, and how are you? I'm good, I'm good, thanks. <laughs> <laughs> oh, you're trying an Irish accent too, the same way they did in, in the trailer, that's amazing. Yeah. I wouldn't dare. <laughs> no, dare, dare, please dare. Um, no. Please no. dare. Ugh. Maybe at the end, but <laughs> I need to warm up to it. No, I, I don't feel comfortable doing it I need to right warm now. up to an Irish accent. <laughs> Do you think Chris Walken warmed up to an Irish accent? No. I'm going to do an Irish accent. <laughs> anyway, last but not least, uh, he, he is our very own leprechaun. We found him at, at the end of a rainbow in a pot of gold. It is, of course, the one and only Benjamin Travis. How are you, Ben? Hello. How was Hello that? there, Ben. Hello there. <laughs> That, I, I hear you're I feel, a racist now, Father. <laughs> I did. That did feel wrong. Me doing that voice. Um, hello. You see, you have that awareness. If only the cast of Wild Mountain Time had had that awareness. Wild you know? Mountain Time. We take a find, Helen. Well, Wild Mountain Time. I just. I don't understand it. I, I'm genuinely quite baffled by it. I don't understand how Jamie Dornan, despite being geographically closest, was I, I, somehow. I, I'm going to quibble here. I'm going to quibble here. I yeah. think he was fine. He's totally was fine. He? He's totally fine. And you know, here's the thing about accents, right? <laughs> They're malleable, strange beasts. They are. They're my sister has beasts. a very different one than I do. Precisely. You guys grew up in the same household, right? Have you met my sister? Yep. Yep. All right. She sounds like she's from a different fucking country than I am. That's so, true. you know, so it's it's strange. People in Ireland can sound completely different. Helen and I are, you know, from different parts of the, the province, as they say back home, and we sound markedly different. She's got a much higher voice, for one thing. And I've got a <laughs> very low true. voice. Very manly. Uh, yeah, very manly <laughs> voice. And some of us don't have an accent at all. I have no accent. I don't know what your accent <laughs> is. What you is your accent, believe- Ben? I have had, sorry, I've just had so many people tell me they didn't have an accent. I used to tour guide for American uh, school students and I would get so many people going, oh my God, we do not have an accent. We are like, (laughs) we just like speak. Everybody else has an accent. And I was, I'd be like, I want you to listen to yourselves and think about what you just said and then get back to me. Yeah. yeah. Listen to the words that are coming out of your mouth right now. Amon, what what, what accent? You're, You're Watford, aren't you? I am. Watford is that? It's like a Londony accent. What is what is Watford? I what is get, Watford? <laughs> what 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 is Watford? It's such a wide ranging question. Um, sometimes I get told I have an American accent, which is really weird. What? I know. I know. By whom? 
people. People with no ears, presumably. <laughs> Obviously, I, I have the capacity to go full African, but I don't really do that unless like my uncles or aunties are around. Um, <laughs> uh, but yeah, honestly, those conversations are just, when you're not in them, but you're just listening in on them, they, they can be quite funny. Mm-hmm. Um, especially because like sometimes my, even, even when, you know, we're, even when we're in sort of speaking distance, sometimes people in my family just like to shout, especially even, even, even if they're on the phone, sometimes they're just shouting down on the phone. I'm like, mom, why are you shouting? It's on the phone. It's like, it's just, it's just what they do. Yeah. It's just natural. It's what, um, they, it's what they do. Yeah. It's what but, they do. But yeah, no, I, I, I haven't gone full African in a while, but. Yeah, it's uh-huh. always fun. <laughs> Do this. All that sort of stuff. Um, think, think in Baku, his opening speech in Black Panther. I have watched and listened from the mountains. We have watched in disgust as your technological advances have been overseen by a child who scoffs at tradition. And now you want to hand the nation over to this prince who could not keep his own father safe oh that's good oh that was good that That was was good good. that was good like yes towards the end (laughs) you know slow start shaky start but you got there towards the end thanks see i i I, Uh, I need to warm up to things is what i'm saying yeah okay now do irish (laughs) maybe i think this is how it worked on wild mountain time Accent mad libs. Instead of going action, they just went clapperboard. Now do Irish. <laughs> just like, ah! Oh god! <laughs> Look, it's very, it's a very difficult uh, selection of accents. You know, it really like Irish accents, plural, um, have tripped up some of the greatest actors of all time. And, oh my uh, god! Yeah. I mean, you know, who did it really well? Hmm. A really good Irish accent. Really good. Don Cheadle. <laughs> <laughs> no, his English accent is the one to beat. Um, I feel oh like there God. have been some. I remember hearing praise at the time for Brad Pitt's accent in Snatch, Snatch. but that's not that, that's more of a traveller accent. So yes. that's a different thing again. Because his Northern Irish accent in was, The Devil's Own. It was not good. It's not good. No, it's not good. It set uh, it set the peace process back by ten years. It's <laughs> uh, my understanding. Uh, yeah, it wasn't it wasn't great, was it? Tommy Lee Jones and Blown Away. Mm. That's a pretty bad one. Irish yeah. Irish non Irish actors doing a good Irish accent. Now, of course, I know the answer to this because I just watched Darby O'Gill and the Little People again at the uh, end of the yes, weekend. Yes, indeed. There's only sure one answer to wish. I think. I think honestly, it put him off accents for life. I know I said this last week, but it, it really must have done. I think he tried. There's little. There's little hints there that he's trying. There's little hints. Little. He does it in the Touchables as well. You know, the whole who would claim to be lad, which he is not. You know, is is an attempt at an Irish accent. There's a little bit, you know. Mm, a little bit. Now and again, he starts off a sentence remembering he's Irish, and then he he's he's forgotten by the end of the sentence. But yeah, that's oh, honestly, you've stumped me at this one. This impromptu question. <laughs> A non-Irish actor who does, because Daniel Day-Lewis is Irish, right? So his mm. Christy Brown is really, yeah, really good. Come. Are the leads in Normal People Irish? Yeah. I believe so, yes. Yeah. It's really tricky. 
Uh, it's actually, a couple of weeks ago, Olivia Cook oh. in um, Pixie. Yes, Jesus, I even had a conversation with her about her yeah. Irish <laughs> accent was good. Her co-star Ben Hardy less so, but I was being gracious and didn't want to drag him into the conversation. <laughs> uh, Alec Baldwin does an Irish accent in that one, which is passable. Yeah. He, he, is it? Is it though? Passable. <laughs> uh, he's very good at accents, Alec Baldwin. Mainly is. American, mainly New York, mainly Brooklyn, yeah. mainly the street where he lives, mainly Alec Baldwin. But <laughs> but he can do other accents because he's got a, a talent for mimicry. I don't know. I'm going to think about this one. I'm going to I'm going to retire to my chambers after this, and I'm going to have a, a good old think. I'm going to commune with the spirits and see what they can tell me. <laughs> and maybe next week we'll come back as we do in the home country. And we, we go we retire to our chambers. We commune with the spirits. Uh, so maybe maybe next week we'll Ask have a decent the little people. <laughs> reach out, Ben. Get in touch with the little people at you know, who live at the end of the rainbow, and perhaps they'll tell us next week the non-Irish Irish accent that wins this this prize. There's a prize to be won as well, apparently. So who knows? Anyway, Wait, listen, I've got to stop doing is this it, accent. A little pot of gold. A little pot of gold. A little tiny you win. one. <laughs> you win the entire leprechaun box set. That's what you win. What if Warwick Davis has done the best Irish accent? Anyway, this is Tom Fullery. <laughs> they're, pe- they're trying. They're trying. They're I don't tr- think... Very trying. Th- the accents in Wild Mountain Time... Because here's the thing. Twitter was going nuts for... I. The first I knew about this trailer was people sliding into our mentions Helen mm. on Twitter going can't wait for you guys to eviscerate it on the podcast or or take you know or rip it apart and then I watched it and I was like I think I've, se- I've heard worse I've definitely I've heard, heard worse. worse that's mm. I, actually do you know what that's not my big issue with it my big issue with that trailer is I have no freaking clue when that's supposed to be set <laughs> like it doesn't make any it doesn't seem like Ireland today is it it's Ireland, Westworld. Is it Ireland 30 years ago? <laughs> that's, that's what it is. But it seems, yeah. It's, it's, it's this weird netherworld of not reality, I feel like. It's because it's, it's, it's Craggy Island. <laughs> if it's Westworld, um, they haven't got to the full fidelity yet. They're, they're doing the fidelity <laughs> tests, but they've only just started. They haven't got to, uh, to full fidelity yet. <laughs> I, I'm, I haven't watched Westworld yet. I'll be honest, but yeah. I'm sure that's really good. I get that reference, yeah. Ben. Okay. I yeah, get yeah, that reference. Yes, <laughs> yes. <laughs> but yeah, it, it um it, it did sort of result in my favorite headline of the week, though, which is from Donald Clark at the Irish Times, who wrote, "What in the name of holy but Jesus and all the suffering saints is this belight- benighted cowpat?" That was the headline of the Wild Mountain <laughs> Times or the Irish Times, which is fantastic. At least they're sitting on the fence and not judging it yet. I think that's, that's good. <laughs> I know. I feel really sorry for the film because this is written and directed by John Patrick Shanley, who's mm. a really good writer and director. You know, he did Moonstruck. He did uh, Joe versus Volcano. I weaken my argument immediately, but <laughs> he's really good and he's got an ear for dialogue and... You know, we got to give this movie a chance. Also, it's a really, really, really badly constructed trailer. Yeah, I mean, it's yeah. Got the entire movie wow. in there. Bad. Yeah, that's the thing. Is that the the trailer itself, ev- the shot choice, the music choice, everything makes it feel like a Thirty Rock parody film. And this yeah. is the second yeah. film we're going to talk about this week that has that feeling to it because the the hillbilly elegy trailer we're going to get to the film later but the hillbilly <laughs> elegy trailer is like truly one of the most hilariously like bad trailers i've ever seen it's, like it's just people juror. shouting at it yeah exactly if you if you if you put the rural juror on there would you believe it like totally if you just would. cut in a couple of shots of jenna maroney and put, i called it the rural juror i feel like either would work anyway three fact structures next can I go oh, first? Bollocks. I mean, because great. My, sure. uh, <laughs> my, my facts sort of 
<laughs> Partly to get it out of the way, because I'm always terrible at this section. But um, my fact uh, ties into World Mountain Time this week, because for some no. reason I had terrible Irish accents on the brain. And one of the ones that really stood out to me was uh, Gerard Butler, poor Jerry Butler <laughs> in hey. P.S. I Love You. Hey. Which, considering he has a, a, apparently has a lot of Irish family, it is a truly atrocious Irish accent. Why not just reset the book to Scotland? Like, why? It, it annoyed me at the time. It continues to annoy me. <laughs> if you're going to cast Jerry Butler, just put it in Scotland. Oh my but god! But this is this is the same thing with all Jerry Butler films. Why not just relocate all of them to Scotland? Why not, why not have his Scotland. characters all come from Scotland? <laughs> yeah, gods of Scotland. Less is Glasgow, and then he kicks a bloke. In, he clicks a he kicks a bloke into a well. Happens Actually, every that, Saturday that in Glasgow. Yeah, that does yeah, work. Yeah. It's just like any Friday night, isn't it? On Sucky Old Street. If anything, they're overdressed for Glasgow on a Friday night. I would say in in three hundred. But right, so we've alienated Ireland. Uh, now we're moving on to Scotland. This is good. This is this is fine. Um, come on, leave Jerry alone. Leave him alone. We'll be talking about him later on as well. You, you anyway, fucking you, you retract come this. On, come on, come on, The, the thing lost. is, he he knows what he did because my fact is that uh, <laughs> his accent was so bad that he publicly apologised to the whole of Ireland for his accent. God bless him. In in an interview with Movies Island with Paul Byrne from Movies Island, uh, Paul Byrne sort of gem- generally brought up like oh you know the Irish accent in Pierce I Love You and uh, Jerry Butler says oh people always say oh the Irish accent they never said you did a great Irish accent so I know it was terrible <laughs> and then he proceeds to take the opportunity to apologise to everybody offended by that accent so uh, that was my fact for this week Jerry Butler's uh, accent in Pierce I Love You is so bad that he publicly apologised to everyone in Ireland that is adorable can I just say, while we're on the subject still, apparently, of Wild Mountain Time and terrible Irish accents, did anyone see, so the play it's based on is called Outside Mullingar. Oh, yes. Did anyone see a clip in the original Broadway production starred Deborah Messing, a.k.a. Will or Grace from Will and Grace? <laughs> and they showed a clip of it. And let me just say that Deborah Messing seems like a wonderful lady. Oh, boy. Very talented and fine <laughs> really comedienne, as they say. Yeah, My God, like, I'm not sure she could find Ireland on a map. <laughs> Check it out. Go and go and search it. Uh, search for it on the Twitters or on the YouTubes. It's it's one sentence. In fairness, it's one sentence. And again, really tricky accent. But what, so what you're saying is that if uh, if Deborah Messing's accent was terrible, maybe it's just a yeah. very, very faithful adaptation of the stage play to the screen. Yeah, exactly. Accents intact. She, I think she says the word heifer like heifer, heifer. It's oh, just boy. oh my god, it's so bad, so bad. Anyway, good fact, Ben, and short and to the point. Just how I like it because if there's one thing I like on this show, it's keeping it short and to the point. I'm on. Can you keep your fact short and to the point? Because if there's one thing I like to do in this early section, is to keep things short and to the point. Thank you, Chris. Uh, yeah, it's, it's quite short this week for me. Uh, I want to talk about Fight Club, but I don't actually want to talk about Fight Club. <laughs> you, you can't talk about Fight Club. <laughs> I'm not going to break the rules. It's the first rule, I'm on. And the second. And the second rule. <laughs> Come on. I'm not going to break rule number one or rule number two, because technically I'm actually talking about the Fight Club DVD. Um, because, you know, okay. back, when, back when they were at their height, we used to get warnings before the film actually started. And on the DVD of Fight Club, the FBI warning at the beginning of Fight Club is actually a message from Tyler Durden. Um, and it reads like this. 
if you are reading this, then this warning is for you. Every word you read of this useless fine print is another second off your life. Don't you have other things to do? Is your life so empty that you honestly can't think of a better way to spend these moments? Are you so impressed with authority that you give respect and credence to all who claim it? Do you read everything you're supposed to read? Do you think everything you're supposed to think? Buy what you're told you should want? Get out of your apartment. Meet a member of the opposite sex. Stop the excessive shopping and masturbation. (laughs) Quit your job. (laughs) Start a fight. Prove you're alive. If you don't claim your humanity, you will become a a statistic. You have been warned, Tyler. He's this close, isn't he? <laughs> to that get the birth of Fox News, Tyler Durden. Oh, hey. Hey, now. He is better dressed than anyone on Fox News. Yeah, this um, is true. I'm really disturbed by that being your fact, Amon, because like that's just a DVD that I own. So <laughs> I just... <laughs> I mean... That was one of the first DVDs I bought, and really? uh, yeah. Uh-huh. Did you remember that, that fight, though? Yeah. Oh, okay. Was it one of those <laughs> weird early double-sided DVDs where they couldn't figure out how to fit the whole film on a disc, and no, you had to flip no, it no, halfway no. through? No, thankfully no. But I think that was only like films over like three or three hours or so, I think. But um, yeah. Wow. I am Jack's complete lack of surprise. Helen, (laughs) what have you got for us? uh, All right. I mean, I found something, I guess. I definitely remembered about this before we started recording. So that's that's the main thing here. Um, We've been here before. We've been down this road before. When Helen (laughs) says, I've got something, I guess, it usually... Yep. Every oh, that's single it. Overhype time. it, why don't you? Over <laughs> overhype it, why don't you? No, it was just it was it was it's interesting. It's another uh, unmade film story, and it's there was something I was watching this week that I won't name, but you'll be able to guess. And um, it mentioned Orson Welles working on an adaptation of Heart of Darkness, which didn't in fact happen. But it it struck me as interesting because it it's like the Hitchcock Titanic I talked about a few weeks ago. This was going to be his first film when he came to Hollywood. It was going to be an adaptation of Joseph Conrad's Heart of Darkness. And unfortunately, it was uh, like the Titanic film, it was considered politically risky um, in that it was very openly critical of fascism and they weren't quite sure if they were going to be anti-fascism or pro-fascism at the time, so they didn't want to take a view. But also, it's um, it was scuppered because it was just too weird and too out there and too expensive, which I just find interesting given what everything that went on with, you know, Apocalypse Now when yeah. Francis Ford Coppola tried to do the same thing 40 or 37 years later. But yeah, he wanted to make it in a series of, I think, 165 long panning shots. He wanted to use um, a fancy new technique where they would basically pre-record like his journey down the river, basically, and project that behind then the acting going on in front. And he'd be playing Kurtz himself, but he wanted it to all be from his point of view. So he would only ever be seen in like reflections um, and wouldn't really be on screen. And that's why RKO eventually went, yeah, no. Have you got anything else? And he went, I don't know, there's this script maybe about a dude called Kane. And he did that instead. What was that then? Uh, I, I don't have the details here, but I, I think I think he finished that one at least. Oh, sounds good. Mm. Sounds good. I'm pretty glad that he didn't make that because I think the last <laughs> thing the world needs is a 1930s uh, take on Heart of Darkness the first person from <laughs> Kurt's point of view. That oh, sounds no, no, he was, he was really terrible. Playing, that would have been him playing the narrator and Kurt's. Okay. Yeah. I mean, I still to, don't to want it. To so. symbolise the way that they're becoming one person and sort of being infected by the same madness, blah, blah, blah. Brilliant. All right. So, uh, taking it into consideration... Looking at the facts, 
assembled in front of me. Helen's a winner. Because Come on. I mean, <laughs> what? what? <laughs> I mean, Chris, I demand you apologise to the whole of Ireland for your terrible Irish accent by way of apology <laughs> to me for not winning. You've kept this bit up for uh, for decades now. I really <laughs> yeah, appreciate your commitment. Really, really deep in character. The person who once heard my accent then said, uh, which part of French Canada are you from? Clearly, <laughs> they, they, they saw the ruse. Yeah, but French Canada. French yeah. Canada. I've had Canada, French Canada, Norwegian, mm-hmm. Scottish, American. I've had them all. I've had them all. It's like Pokemon <laughs> of accents. That's, that's, that's you got to get them all. Uh, anyway. Uh, that's it for the three fact structure. Well done, Helen. Hooray. Everyone, round of applause. Round. Mm. Yeah. Mm. Thank you, guys. That's very yeah, sweet. There you go. Okay, so that was the three fact structure this week. Another triumphant return for the most beloved segment of the show. And now it is time for the listener question. This has just come in on the Twitters from an uh, old Twitter question submitter at Carl from Wolves. With it being Friday the 13th tomorrow, what order would you rate the Friday the 13th movies? Go on. I would say one would be number one for me. Num- well, technically, <laughs> yes. Yeah. Although one doesn't have Jason. So... But yeah. technically, no. Well, technically, I mean, one's yes. the only one that I've seen, though. So that counts me out. You, oh, whoa. Okay, yeah. sorry. Back back the fuck up, Sparky. You've what? One more than me, Well, of course. Notorious <laughs> Freddy Cat, among woman. Guess which one's the best, among of the... Uh, we're going to throw Freddy vs. Jason in as well, so uh, and the remake. So there are 12 Friday the 13th movies to choose from. Well, like that great song once said, three is the magic number. Yes, it is. <laughs> yes, it is. <laughs> Let's go with three. Three. Uh, okay. Three is one in 3D. Uh, ben? I'm going to say two is going to be my guess. All right. Okay. So the Friday the 13th movies ranked by people who haven't seen them. <laughs> we're going one, one, yep. three, mm-hmm. two. What's next? Oh, uh, and J- uh, Freddy. And Freddy. <laughs> <laughs> one, three, two, Freddy. The space on. one. The space one. One, yeah. three, two, Freddy space. Yep. Any more? Yep. Any more for any more? I'm good there. I, we're I good. Think we we're going yeah. to stop there. There you go, Carl from Wolves. That is a definitive <laughs> ranking of the Friday the 13th movies. I have seen them all. I'm not going to bore you with my ranking, but uh, I would probably go uh, with six being the best. I like six. Jason lives. Yes. Uh, spoiler. Right. The real question this week comes from a rap scallion on Twitter called at Chris Hewitt, uh, who noticed that this week, yes, it's me, it's my show, I can do what I want. And so <laughs> I realized this week the that worst. two people in the films we're reviewing this week share a birthday with me. Technically, you could say oh I share God. a birthday with them, but I'm a narcissist, so they share <laughs> yeah. a birthday with me. So Sophia Loren, wow. 20th of September, for it is the, the day, 20th of September, um, she's 86, and Malachi Kirby, who stars in Steve McQueen's Mangrove, which is on BBC One oh, this cool. week, also shares my birthday. I'm a tad older than he is, but that's not dwelling that. Uh, so it got me thinking, who is the best, most famous person or weirdest or quirkiest film-related person with whom you share a birthday? Have at it, folks. I have some pretty good ones. I've got okay. a little list. I've got a whole array. The first being the ultimate celebrity. I share a birthday with Empire's own. What's the date? Own, oh, What's the, date? Uh, the date of my birthday. It, uh-huh. Why did I say that? That sounded weird. I'm a robot. <laughs> 
You don't, you don't have to say the year, but the the the, uh, the date. My birthday is the 24th of August, and I share that birthday with Empire's own Dan Jolin. Oh, my God. Ooh. The ultimate celebrity. Uh, but beyond that, I've got a good little list. I've got uh, Stephen Fry, I think is a pretty good birthday twin. Uh, Kenny Baker. Beep, boop, beep, boop. Hey. Um, Rupert Grint. I thought mm, it was uh, cool. a little bit of magic in there. And Dave Chappelle. Thought oh, that was this a good, is good, a nice this is spread, a good nice. array. See if you had a dinner party with these these folks. That'd be a good dinner party, especially if Kenny Baker turned up because that yeah, would you really could cause put a canapes on him. <laughs> that was good because he's an R two D two, not because he's dead. <laughs> <laughs> I did wonder where you were going. <laughs> I'm not sure it's better. Uh, you know, like he could, he, he could, he could, like the way he propels Luke's lightsaber towards him in Return of the Jedi. He could do that only with, you know. Like just a like a meat slab. You could just propel a meat slab towards you. Anyway, yes, Kenny Baker, Dave Chappelle, Stephen Fry. Who's the other one? Rupert Grint and Dan Jolin. And Dan 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 Jolin. Let's not not bury the lead here. (laughs) Dan Jolin. That's a good dinner table. That's a good Mm. dinner party. Well, well done. Happy birthday, everybody. Uh, Amon, who do you share a birthday with? I. Was initially disappointed when I typed this into Google. My birthday is on March 9th. Mm-hmm. And, you know, they, there weren't many sort of really cool people that I knew who shared my birthday. But then I realized that I'm more of a quality of a quantity guy anyway. <laughs> and therefore, I do believe that I win this because I share the same birthday. Fight and talk. As a man who can lay claim to having one of the best dance sequences of any movie in this past decade. I share the same birthday as a man who has some of the best hair (laughs) and one of the best beards in the business. Ladies and gentlemen, I share the same birthday as Oscar Isaac. Boom! Mic drop. Thanks for playing. Um, We're done here. Hello. I feel like there's some more to come, but okay. That's pretty good. (laughs) He is is very, very good in the beard department. He's very, very good. Mm. Yeah. It's a gift. (laughs) <laughs> he's very good yeah. very very good so uh so you're having your your birthday party it's just you hey. and oscar isaac that's a good hey, birthday party that sounds to like me. a party there's a party <laughs> oh, especially boy. if you're both doing the x machina dance yeah. in yes. that'd be great oh, oh my gosh hang Give on a ideas. second you got you got juliette binoche as well that's good do i that's great i can yeah you got juliette binoche you got linda fiorentino from the last seduction why are you searching that? I didn't get these results. <laughs> it's called the internet. Have you it tried is it? It's really good. The internet of I, which you speak. Just, I know they maybe don't have it in Watford, but uh, they have it down here in <laughs> they have it down here in Big London. So, uh, so yeah, I'm just trying to see who else uh, you may. Bobby Fisher. I mean, he's not technically, oh, wow. but there's been a movie based there's on him. There's been a movie about him. That's, mm, that's yeah. that counts. So that's all right. Please you can remember have him that that counts well. when we get to mine. <laughs> Amon, you share a birthday with YG, who has the song of the moment right he now. He really does. I did and- know that. I did know that. I was going to bring that up. Actually, yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, you're completely correct. Uh, YG, uh, for those who don't know, uh, he is the author of Fuck Donald Trump, uh, which has been a worldwide anthem in recent days with good reason. We have actually <laughs> mentioned that. But, uh, but yes. Yeah, how have we not mentioned that? <laughs> <laughs> it's just such a relief. We that can is stop. the power of Wild yeah. Mountain Time that we haven't mentioned. <laughs> <Yes. Yeah. laughs> 
Hang on a second. Do you think Trump released the trailer for Wild Mountain Time? It was released at at Four Seasons Total Landscaping. Actually, they did have a big they did have a big trailer launch party. Uh, wow, that's that's wild. So he he released the trailer for that as a distraction. Okay, I can see that. That makes sense. I can I can, I can totally can see it. that. Uh, yeah. Okay, is it my turn? Uh, apparently, it is. March twenty fifth. March 25th. So first of all, people, there's been a movie about Henry II, my favourite English king, born on my birthday. It's pretty cool. Um, I, I, and of course, was the one, as we all know, in The Lion in Winter. Jack Ruby, who killed Lee Harvey Oswald, he's been in all the movies. Um, right. Gloria Steinem, she's got a new film out about her soon. Blues Brothers star Aretha Franklin. Thank you very much. Oh, okay, that's, okay. That's, that's a good yeah. one. Yeah. That's a good one. That's good. Yeah. Rocketman producer Elton John. Thanks a oh, lot. That's solid. That's solid. So yeah. if you're having a dinner party, he's so far is the only person who can attend. Okay, well, I've got some more. Movie producer <laughs> Amy Pascal. Um, Bonnie that's Bedalia. Good. That's oh, a good one. Oh, my God. I know. Holly Gennaro. Holly Gennaro herself. Lee Pace. Hello. And Sarah Jessica Parker. That's a good list. That's a good list. It's not bad. It's, yeah. That would be an eclectic dinner party. It would be, <laughs> <laughs> it would be yeah. an unusual mix of people. But I Lee think, Pace you know, and uh, Sarah Jessica Parker. I don't know what you'd all talk about. <laughs> pies. Well, no, me and Lee Pace could talk about pies. Me and Sarah Jessica Parker could talk about... I'd just get her to educate me about shoes. I feel like we'd have a great time. Maybe. That's a good list. Uh, although I think Ben's might be winning. Because yes. Because Dan Jolin. Because Dan Jolin, we all want to invite Dan Jolin, but unfortunately we can't all be born on August 24th. All right, so uh, September 20th is mine, as I've already said. So uh, sticking to people who are alive, you got Sophia Loren, the great, the mm-hmm. legendary Sophia Loren. She'd be fantastic. Uh, who else do we have? We got, um, um, technically speaking, George R.R. R. Martin. I know he's not really been in movies, See, but he wouldn't, you know. he wouldn't he wouldn't be attending that party because he'd be writing his book. Busy writing. Of course writing. he would. Mm, course course. He would. Mm. Yes. Asia Argento was also born mm. the same day as I was. Tell you what, I actually have a proper birthday buddy. I have a proper birthday twin. I'm sure I've mentioned this in the podcast before, but John Bernthal, aka the Punisher, oh. and Ooh. I were born on exactly the same day. Wow. Okay. Very well, cool. I'll come to your party and Amon's party then. If that's okay. In a sort of, that's, uh... Yeah, I got the looks and the talent. He got the uh, whatever he got. I don't know. He's you know he got the dregs of what was left. Uh, whatever they were handing out in wow. September twentieth that year. Uh, who else? <laughs> Aldous Hodge. Aldous Hodge was born. Oh, uh, okay. Yeah. That's wow. a good one. He's not coming around to my house on my birthday for, for a birthday party. Not after the noise my wife made when she saw his arms in the Invisible Man. No thank you. No thank you. Completely understandable. I'll, I'll be honest. I'm not yes. sure I'd trust Waller around um, John Berntall either. I mean, yeah. <laughs> Uh, and then last but not least, uh, N. Bush Wright, who is the female lead, she is Karen in Blade, was mm. also born on my birthday. So I'd have her around as well. We could have a good old chat about Blade and yes. Wesley Snipes and all that sort of Amazing. stuff. And it'd, it'd be great. So uh, there you go. Happy, happy days. Happy days for everybody. Helen's got a bunch of dead people. Uh, Ben's got one <laughs> of the great comedians. Interesting dead people, though. Interesting dead people. <laughs> 
I could talk to Henry II about Elner of Aquitaine. Oh my God, it'd be amazing. Can you imagine? (laughs) Sounds like a ripping party, Helen. (laughs) (laughs) We're just just waiting for the holodeck technology to become real and then we are cooking with gas. I tell you, man. It's going to be a lot of fun. And it's just uh, Amon and Oscar Isaac in tight gap sweaters just gyrating back and forth, back and forth. We'll oh, be doing yeah. the ex-machina dance to fuck Donald Trump. It's going to be amazing. Listen, I hijacked I hijacked this section this week. I apologise for that. Uh, it will never happen again until it happens again. Uh, but if you do want to have your question read out in the Emperor podcast, we do have one actually for next week that someone um, DM'd me on Instagram of all places. I never <laughs> checked my Instagram DMs. I didn't even know you could have DMs on Instagram. But uh, I did and someone has and so we have a question for next week but beyond that if you want to have your question read out in the Emperor podcast the only game in town really is Twitter so get in touch with us on there you can either respond directly to me uh, on at Chris Hewitt or you can slide into my DMs yes my DMs are rather foolishly open or you can just you know wait till I do a panicked shout out usually of a Thursday morning when I realise I don't actually have any questions but this week because of Sophia Loren and then I discovered today Malachi Kirby as well I decided to do this one instead right. so sue me <laughs> I don't think they'd have a cause of action Just I don't fire. think they would time now <laughs> then for this week's guests I say guests because there's two of them uh, together. We don't have authors very often on this podcast. And when we do have authors on this podcast, they tend to be Lee Child. And there's no exception here. (laughs) Um, Regular listeners will know I'm a massive Jack Reacher fan. So whenever there is a chance to get Lee Child on the podcast to talk about Jack Reacher, I jump at it and grab it with both hands. The new Jack Reacher novel... The Sentinel is out now in all good and evil bookshops and virtual bookshops as well. And it's a belting read. And I have to say, I, if I'm completely honest, I was a little worried about this one because this is the 25th Jack Reacher novel, but it's also the first under the new arrangement. So Lee Child last year announced that he wants now, he's in his mid-60s, he wants to retire. And so he has decided to hand over the reins of Jack Reacher to his brother, who is also a novelist, Andrew Grant, but who has now changed his name to Andrew Child. Don't worry, it's it's less complicated than it sounds. Mm-hmm. And they have written this first book together, and I was really worried about it, but it is a belting, rip-roaring read that feels very Reacher in all the right ways. They're currently holed up somewhere in the States. I think it's Wyoming. And I jumped onto Zoom, the Dread Zoom, with them. Uh, a couple of weeks ago to have a long chat about the book and about handing over Reacher and about the new Reacher TV show and all sorts of other stuff besides. I had a lot of fun with this one and I hope that you will do too. Do please enjoy. Delighted to be joined on the Empire podcast in lockdown, of course, by the authors of the 25th Jack Reacher book, The Sentinel, Lee Child and the newly christened Andrew Child. How are you both? Doing well, thanks. Extremely How are you? Good. Thanks. I'm not too bad. Happy Publication Day, by the way, over over here. <laughs> well, thank you. Yeah, it's Publication Day um, over in the states too. So it's um, it's a fantastic day for me. I know this is Lee's 25th Reacher publication, but it's my first. So uh, I'm trying to enjoy every minute of it. So thanks for having us on the show. Oh no! Thanks for taking time out to talk to an idiot on Publication Day because <laughs> I imagine most of the time you'd be. What would you be doing normally on a on a Publication Day, Lee? What, what's a what's the ritual for you? Well, of course, this year is completely, totally, utterly different than any other mm. year. You know, normally what would happen is <clears throat> tonight there would be a flagship event somewhere, and there would be media all day before it. So. 
without the flagship event, this is a normal day. You know, we're doing media, except normally you and I would be uh, in that studio that I know so well, having a laugh. Um, but this remote stuff, I have sort of hated it at the beginning, but I've started to like it because I like Zoom. I can see, I can see your room. You know, I'm looking at everything behind you, thinking, yeah. why has he got all that weird stuff in his room? <laughs> well, initially this wasn't meant to be on display, but then I thought I'd just lean into the weird stuff uh, and just and just embrace it. And literally about 10, 15 minutes before we started this call, I realized I've got a load of your books behind me. And I thought, is that creepy? Is that weird? But you've seen creepier, Lee. You've seen weirder, right? I have, but I thought maybe 15 minutes ago you put them all there just to make me feel good. That's the shelf that you swap around depending on what author you've got on. <laughs> yeah, precisely. No, uh, alas, that is the normal shelf. That is the Lee Child shelf, just below, just below Stephen King. That doesn't mean that's where you are in my affections, Lee, but it's just that's just how it panned out. I don't mind being below Stephen King. <laughs> Uh, Andrew, what's a normal publication day like for you? And has this differed? Obviously, there's a pandemic. Obviously, you guys aren't together. But has this differed from what you would normally do? Yeah, I mean, it really, as, as Lee said, the main difference is that we can't get out and go anywhere. You know, normally there would be some kind of um, face-to-face events in the evening, maybe even at lunchtime. And those things are great fun because, you know, when, when you write, there, there are two completely different sides to writing a book. There's the all of the time you spend on your own, in your pajamas, <clears throat> in your spare room, making stuff up. Um, and really, it's very hard to sort of see beyond that because everything that happens is just in your head. And then the book comes out and then you switch to this completely different mode where you have to um, get into the mode of standing up in public, talking, you know, trying to be funny. So it's very strange that sort of the two complete opposite ends of the scale. And honestly, I, I, I miss the, um, the, the, the events that we used to do. We'd go to bookstores or libraries or, or places like that. And, and um, there's, it's really nice to, to meet the people who uh, are kind enough to spend their hard-earned cash on your book. It's great to meet them. I love to hear what they think. You know, it's, it's, really, it's really useful and enjoyable. And the other thing we always used to do, my wife, um, Tash, is also a novelist. So yeah. we, we would have a tradition that on launch day, we would always go out to, um, depending on what time of day, depending on what, when the events were, we'd always make sure to get out to uh, to one of our favorite restaurants to have a you know a slap up meal because there's there's not much you can control in um, in the publishing industry. People think of it as being a, a solitary thing, which some of the time it is, but actually you're mm-hmm. just part of a of a big machine. You know, there's there are so many other people involved in the process that if there is something that you can you can take control of, like having fun on launch day, then, you know, you absolutely should do it. But Lee, I've, I, I see you've discovered another benefit of doing this from home. You're, <laughs> you've, you've lit up a cigarette, which yeah. you, you can't do over, over here in studios. No, you can't. But I, and, and I'm also maintaining the tradition of I'm in my pajamas because uh, Andrew and I were on uh, breakfast television this morning, which meant two, two o'clock last night for us. And yeah. so uh, I went to bed late, got up late, and I thought, oh, it's Sony Empire, I'll just show up in my pajamas. <laughs> I won't make an effort. <laughs> They're not making an effort. Why should I give it a go? Both you guys are in Wyoming at the moment, but I had I had this weird vision of the two of you being together, working on book 26 in the same room, one typing, one pacing, one pacing, one typing. Has it ever worked out like that uh, during this the last few months? Uh, it did at the very beginning, you know, before 
the situation got so serious and before mm. lockdown started and so on. Ultimately, it's about the words on the page. And um, as long as we got those down somehow, then I found the method didn't really matter. And it probably saved us a lot of time because, you know, apart from anything else, we're friends and we spend most of the time laughing and joking about stuff. So if we had been together, it would have been endless trips to the coffee machine, refueling it, setting it off again, and uh, laughing, joking, talking about this, talking about that, who's done this, who's done that, what a drag this is, what a pain that is. And then, you know, maybe five minutes of work. But the pandemic sort of saved us <laughs> from that a little bit and it made it a lot more efficient, I think. Yeah, that's absolutely right, because we um, we followed Lee's tradition of beginning on September 1st. So, of course, that was back when the world was normal. So, um, we had a, f you know, a few months running up to Christmas where we were both in Wyoming and we were able to, to get together because, um, you know, here in Wyoming, we are next but one neighbors, which means that our houses are three and a half miles apart. So, um, it was pretty easy for Lee to just come over to my place. Um, my office sort of goes out onto a, onto a deck so you don't you really even need to come through the house you could just show up um, and, and we would be um, then hanging out you know sitting around and as he was saying you know you know doing quite a lot of things other than working but then um, once the pandemic came um, there was definitely an upside insofar as <clears throat> as he said you know, you know a book is really ultimately just about the words on the page and the thing about not being able to talk about that so much was it meant the words had to stand on their own you know there wasn't a situation situation where I would be saying to him, hey, no, this passage is good because of blah, blah, blah reasons, you know, um, he would pick it up, you know, the email would arrive, he would read it, um, and it had to it had to stand on its own merits. So I think in a way, it actually made the writing stronger. The only thing that was a little difficult for me is that our, um, our writing processes uh, were a little different going into this. You know, I like mm. to plan a little bit, not not too much, but I like a bit of a plan, whereas Lee's famous for really um, having no plan. So there would be quite a few times, particularly when we were working in separate locations where we'd be talking on the phone and I'd say to him, okay, so that's great that we're happy with that scene, but what's going to happen next? And he'd say, well, I don't know. And, um, you know, it made me feel that little bit more exposed, the fact that that was happening when I was literally on my own, you know. But ultimately, <laughs> I guess it's... Um, the best analogy is it's like walking a tightrope without a safety net. Um, you have to be super, either super confident or super reckless to do that. And I think that um, you know that confidence is something that comes across in the in the previous twenty four books. So it was something that um, the method kind of helped me to uh, to capture some of that spirit. So you know, in the end, in the end, it all worked out, which is the important thing. <laughs> um, Lee, of course you are. You are famous for for winging the Reacher books, uh, for want of a better word. And uh, uh, you know the, there are numerous examples: Gone Tomorrow, for example, or uh, A Wanted Man, where characters at first seem to be one thing, turn out to be another thing. Without giving too much away about the Sentinel, that applies to a couple of characters in that as well. So, do you roll with the punches still, or has Andrew instilled in you a, a, a discipline? Is is perhaps the wrong word here, Lee? But has he instilled in you a, a discipline that was perhaps previously lacking? 
<laughs> well, yeah, uh, I think he's, yeah, I mean, I, I even though he's my younger brother, I, I sort of admire the way he lives his life. And I, uh, I try and learn as much as I can. And I, to me, actually, that's a really valuable thing in life. Learn from people that are younger than you, not, not necessarily that are older than you. And I think it's better, actually. So I wouldn't say no. I mean, I'm too far gone. I'll never have discipline. Although I could dress it up in a fancy way and say what I do is distributed planning. Instead of doing it all at once at the beginning, what I do is I plan each sentence as I go along. And so at the end of the day, the amount of work is the same. It's just spread out. And um, But I think that having done it for 24 years in my way, it was really valuable to get Andrew's perspective on it, because I think there is something about the Reacher books that benefits totally from having uh, an improvised approach. You know, it just makes the story flow more interestingly. And as you said, some of those characters, are, I well remember some of them. Uh, Gone Tomorrow, definitely. Yeah, this was a person, she was good looking, she was great. You know, she was um, one of those sort of Eastern European beauties and i thought yeah this is going to be the love interest you know but then later mm. on i just thought nah let's make it a bad person and that <laughs> that kind of flexibility is um i think it's what made the reacher books what they are uh you, you can't guess it and for 24 years i've always had a laugh when you know you go to one of these events and some wise guy says oh i had it all figured out after page 50. I'm like, really? Because I didn't. <laughs> <laughs> the only thing is set in stone, granite, no less, is Reacher himself. Yeah. yeah, Reacher is the only unchanging thing. And of course, with a series that runs this long, that's the whole point of it. People mm. like like the character and they, they always want to come back to him. And in a way, that's uh, it's... It, it's it requires discipline to make a decent plot because you know deep down all they care about is seeing Reacher doing Reacher type stuff. So does the plot really matter? As long as he kind of beats up a few people and um, you know <laughs> eventually wins, everybody's happy. So does it really matter? And I've always um, I've always thought yes, it does. You know you've yeah. got to give a hundred percent and you've got to you've got to cover every base. Of course the character is important, but the plot is important too, and that's what really saved the day on the Sentinel in that I, I said to Andrew, um, the plot is yours. Because part of the point of this was to drag Reacher slightly more into the 21st century. I love the mm -hmm. fact that he's such a Luddite and that he's so contemptuous of consumer culture and so on. But it was getting a bit much, I thought. And um, to be honest, I've always tried to be self-aware, and I do realize now that the world is moving on ahead of me somewhat. You know, I'm staring at the future, disappearing into the distance. I'm mm. not really keeping up with it anymore. And Andrew was able to rectify that. And so I, I just said, you do the plot. And he came up with this plot that has turned out to be incredibly contemporary. Um, you know, we are, yeah. we, we sent in the book, you know, the Sentinel is about ransomware fundamentally. And, uh, we, we sent in the book in manuscript stage and like immediately one, one week after the next, there was ransomware here, ransomware there, a huge bookstore chain in the States was hit by ransomware. It's turned out to be dead bang on the money. And so that I'm so happy about it. You know, that proves that it's working. Andrew, I want to talk as, as well about the experience of 
of writing with Lee. Did you have a little frizz on, a little little shiver running up your spine? Because you, you know, and you've said in the past how how big a Reacher fan you are when you wrote, for example, "That's for damn sure" for the first time, or Reacher <laughs> said nothing for the first time. Yeah, it was Reacher said nothing was was the real thing. I remember what it felt like to me was years ago. I saw a documentary about the making of the James Bond movies. And one of the people they were interviewing was the guy that wrote the music, um, or at least coordinated the music. And I mean, it's kind of obvious when you think about it, but I just hadn't ever thought about it. You know, the great big sort of part of the music. They spend months planning exactly when where that is first going to be used you know because there has to be a can't be too soon there has to be a build-up there has to be tension building and then at exactly the right moment that music has to has to burst in and i kind of felt that reacher said nothing was was the equivalent of that you know because i remember thinking you know people are going to expect it they're going to be looking forward to it but you can't you know you can't shoot your guns too soon you know you have to have it at the right spot so um it was fun actually you know thinking you know when when am i first going to write those words and actually i have a t-shirt um that lee made a few years ago at one of these some some event he did these promotional t-shirts that say reacher said nothing so i'd be wearing that shirt while i was while i was writing thinking is it is it going to be today is it going to be today and then of course finally uh, finally the day came and that was that was a fun moment so, so uh, when you first, when the two of you first started to sit down and write the Sentinel, uh, Andrew, did you say to Lee, "Right, there's going to be some changes around here now," or I've got some stuff that you maybe haven't done with Reacher for a while that I want to bring back? For example, I noticed that the jukebox in his head, which really hasn't mm-hmm. been a thing for a long time in the books, is back big time in this one. Yeah, well, the way I saw that was, you know, as Lee mentioned earlier. Um, part of what he was looking for was for Reacher to be nudged kind of gently towards, if not quite into, at least towards the 21st century. Um, So that was something that I was very conscious of wanting to accommodate. But from my point of view, you know, as you said, I've, you know, I've been a Reacher fan since really before the beginning. And so what I did was I thought back over the 24 books and I thought about, well, what are the things in those that I specially like? You know, if I, if I could write a really short list of the things that I really love about it and I could, I could, you know, not, you know, say, bring those back to the fore a little bit. That's what I was aiming to do. And one of those things, as an example, I mean, you mentioned the music, that's absolutely part of it. But another one was, for example, um, over the last, say, sort of five or six reaches, it reached had become much more sort of brief and terse in his speech. And what I remember from some of the earlier ones, you know, maybe the first dozen or so, you know, he used hmm. to be really witty, really sarcastic. Um, I think in The Visitor, for example, he took this long car ride with a woman who turned out to be not such a nice character. And you know, we're <laughs> used to seeing Richard destroying people with his fists or with by headbutting yeah. them or whatever. But in this particular scene, Richard destroyed this woman verbally. You know, he was witty, he was sarcastic, he baited her, he goaded her. And every time she tried to come back, he came back harder. And I remember literally laughing out loud when I read that for the first time. So I wanted to, 
you know, put one foot forward and maybe one back mm -hmm. to reconnect. So, because you don't want the character like Richard changing too much. You want maybe a little bit of seeing him from a little bit of a different angle, seeing him in a situation where he's perhaps a little out of his comfort zone, but at the mm -hmm. same time, reinforcing him with all of those aspects that people have grown to know and love over all the years. And Lee, from your point of view, I mean, uh, Reacher says nothing quite a lot, but in this book, you can't shut him up at times. <laughs> he is, he's very verbose in The Sentinel. That's what we were looking for, yeah. I mean, uh, I, I, I was less uh, sort of specific about the way I was thinking about it, but the whole point of it was to bring him, give him the old energy that he used to have, uh, give him the, the sort of um, drive that he used to have, which, and I've always tried to be really self-aware about my own capabilities and the latter books Reacher is um, I just got into this groove which I really liked and I think it totally worked but if the groove was to continue Reacher would have about three words of dialogue in the whole book and so it needed to be somehow um, rebooted back to an earlier an earlier type of Reacher obviously still in the present day, but his, his slightly earlier personality. And, and when Andrew mm. pointed that out, I thought, yeah, that's absolutely right. That there, there would be many times when Reacher would talk for five, six, seven lines, you know. Mm. And um, for some reason, I'd boil that down to five or six words, and we needed to reset that. And so that's what, that's what we did with this. We wanted to have... Uh, still a contemporary story, but a slightly earlier version of Reacher just to power it through and also give us the chance that, you know, it'll take Andrew 12 or 15 books to get him down to the haiku style dialogue. <laughs> <laughs> and with a bit of luck, uh, you know, that, that'll happen. And so, yeah, I was really happy about it. And the, of course, the fantastic thing about doing this collaboration is that we are not ever going to tell anybody who wrote what. And so that if a critic says, oh, that's a bit of a diversion, that's new, I don't like that, we can say, well, I wrote that. <laughs> and uh, so, you know, so we get away with whatever we want. <laughs> I like it. It's clever. Uh, how long do you see this arrangement lasting? How long will it be before Andrew's name is solely on the books? Well, I, I think pretty soon. You know, the idea is that we're going <laughs> to work together for the transition, you know, in, in America, we call it the peaceful transfer of power. <laughs> and uh, we're, hopefully that will take uh, a couple of years. And, um, and then I step back into uh, geriatric obscurity and he strides on forward until the same thing happens to him down the road. <laughs> <laughs> Andrew, if you know, when that day comes, if you're looking for someone to take over the books, I'm more than happy to change my surname to child, by the way, of that... <laughs> If it ever comes to that, I'm, you know, I'm just putting it out there right now. Bagsy. It's very funny because, you know, it came as a bit of a shock to me when, when, uh, when I had to do it. But since then, we've had quite a few people lining up saying that they're ready to change their names to child. So <laughs> there's not a shortage of volunteers. Yeah. We're going to keep it in the family. You know, that, that character you mentioned, uh, Gone Tomorrow, that it's... She starts out okay, and then she suddenly becomes the bad woman. I stole that off Andrew's daughter, Katie. Um, she she wrote a story for school, and you know, she I can't remember how old she must have been, maybe eight or nine or something like that. It was a long time ago, and she I was there, and she said she'd had to write a story, and I said, okay, yeah what did you write? And she said, well, the teacher told us I had to be a good person and a bad person. 
And I thought, yeah, that's, that's damn right. You know, that's how you tell a story. It's a conflict. And she said, my bad person was called Lila Hoff. And I, I thought, all right, I'm stealing that name. So in a way, the, the next generation is already involved. I was also going to say that, uh, frankly, if I took over the character, I, I couldn't keep up the Aston Villa references, quite frankly, because I am a Liverpool fan. And what you guys did to us a few weeks ago still hurts. I loved that. I totally loved that. I just thought, yes, finally, finally, something went right. And because, you know, we've all seen games like that where nothing works. I've seen a million Villa games where nothing works. And this was a game where everything worked. And I thought, yeah, we are, we are do that. You know, it's about bloody time. <laughs> yeah, it reminded, me of, it reminded me of that World Cup semi-final, you know, from a couple of World Cups ago, I remember, where Germany, like every time they touched the ball, they scored, you know, it was, it was kind of like <laughs> yeah. that. Yeah, I'm over it now. It's fine. It's all good. Um, but uh, we'll keep on reminding you. Yeah. Oh, no, please. Anyway. Yeah, please. That'd be really great. Yeah. Thank you. Uh, but we've got yeah. a game tonight. Don't it's in the Champions League? You might. Do you know what the Champions League is? It's for the uh, the Champions. League. <laughs> we, we won it. Yeah, we won it. <laughs> no, you want to win this European Cup, Lee? Not not the Champions League. It's a different, a whole True. different thing. Exactly. Far more exclusive. You actually <laughs> had to win the league in those days to play in it. You could well, just we won it four times. Then. <laughs> I, I texted a friend. I said, uh, "What time is it? My watch says seven past Liverpool." <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. Lee, because I'm such a cracking journalist, I've left the, the obvious question <laughs> to the end, which is, why are we here? Uh, you know, you didn't seem to be running out of steam in the Reacher books. Past tense was really interesting in a way that you you know, you were experimented structurally with those different characters and, you know, Blue Moon, he was as brutal as ever. But were you off interviews? Were you running out of steam with, with Reacher a little bit? I, I, I don't think I was. I mean, I, at the beginning, I made a promise to myself and to the reader that I would never, ever phone it in. And I, I, I'm proud to say that I never did. But it was in my head that I was going too soon. I couldn't keep it going for, for much longer at that level of intensity. Plus, I've been carrying around this burden for 60 years, which is that I wanted to retire. Because when I was when I started primary school, you know, I was wrestling with sums and reading and all that kind of thing. And my granddad was retiring and I didn't really understand the word. And my mother explained, she said, it means he doesn't have to go to work. He can stay at home and do whatever he likes. And I thought, well, damn, that sounds pretty good. So for 60 years, I've had that as a target. And I, it's an irresistible target for me. I just want to be retired. And so <laughs> it was a combination of the two things. I, I, I'd, I'd worked hard all my life, and now I was ready for some time off. And I could tell within two or three years, I was going to run out of gas. So it was a question mm. of rescuing it while I had time, you know, before, before it went bad. Has it also given you a chance to focus on, say, the Amazon prime video show that's that's happening right now are you are you heavily involved with that yeah i'm much more involved with it than i was with the movies and partly because you know you live and learn and i should have been probably a bit more involved with the movies uh so i am involved with it and it's going great it's going to be fantastic i wish that had been an alternative uh, you know all those years ago when i did that deal but this long form narrative television is definitely the way to go i mean we've got 10 to 12 hours to tell a story instead of 90 minutes and uh, you can just have the patience and you can have the slow development and so on. It's, it's going to be great. It's, the first season is all written. It's largely cast. But, of course, we're hung up on the pandemic. We were going to mm. 
shoot it in Georgia because they are, you know, we're doing killing floor first. But of course, um, Georgia is a Petri dish and it's just awful. There's no way of doing it. And so it's all on hiatus basically till the spring, till we see what it's like. If we can, we'll shoot in the States, otherwise we'll shoot in Canada. But it's mm. going to be... We'll, we'll start next spring now. So it's given us a break, which is great, actually. It means we can sort out things like the music. I think the music is incredibly important to the Reacher series. You know, as you were saying before, he's got this jukebox in his head. He, and the scenes, the, the whole action somehow suits some particular kind of music. So I think we need a lot of focus on that. So it's giving us time to do it really properly. And uh, Amazon is incredibly excited about it, very supportive. And my attitude to that kind of thing has always been go where the love is and that they're the ones who, who really wanted to do it. And so, yeah, it's going to be great, but it's going to be next year. Next year. But you have a reacher, and Alan Richard. What, what can you say about him? Well, he's, ex you know, literally we scoured the world. I mean, we, it was difficult to do, do screen tests by Zoom, but we looked at everybody we could think of. And, and in my head, what I wanted was um, – a relative unknown, which with respect, Alan still is. Uh, I wanted somebody that could own the role and the role could own him, you know, like Sean Connery in, in all those years ago. Mm. Somebody super identified with the role. And I, I would never say this to Alan's face, but I wanted somebody who was not particularly good looking, you know, just a sort of big, <laughs> ugly guy who the whole concept of Reacher, especially on the screen, is that he steps into the scene and the temperature drops a degree because everybody's just a little worried. And um, he does that really well. And he's, a, he's also a sort of gentleman, Alan, actually. He, the thing about Reacher is he's a West Point graduate. He was a U.S. Army major, which gives him a kind of peculiar courtesy in the way that he talks to people. And Alan totally gets that. And so you could, it's a fantastic, his screen test was great. You've got this guy being very polite to you, but between every word, you know he's going to kill you in a minute. <laughs> of course, Lee, he's only six foot three. So is he going to stand in a box? I mean, what's, what's happening? <laughs> <laughs> I think we're going to send him to the same shoe supplier that Tom Cruise had. <laughs> <laughs> One last thing about that. Um, Killing Floor is a first-person book. Um, Reacher is, by his very nature, a loner. The uh, the temptation with TV shows can be to surround your star with an ensemble. How, how are you approaching the show and the pitfalls that, that may come with uh, the, the translation? Well, we're pretty clear that it's not going to be a soap opera. It's not going to be a repertory cast or an ensemble. But we do need, uh, at some point, a reference. So there's a, a recurring character in some of the Reacher books, Franz Nagley who we're going to introduce in season one so that she will have a sort of small role in every season that kind of anchors it. And that will stand in for the, you know, the soap opera aspect. And script-wise, it works really well. Um, and she's an important character in the series, although infrequent. So, yeah, she's going to stand in for that. And it should work great. And Andrew, what can you say about book 26 at the moment? Where are you guys with that? Well, according to the long-standing tradition, we started on September 1st. Um, we've got a great opening. I think it, I think people are going to love it. I certainly do. And, um, you know, 
the only other thing is that I can't really say too much else because we are following Lee's methods. So uh, if you ask me what happens after the after the opening, then actually I don't know. <laughs> we should see what happens. It does. Yeah, we will. Um, we will get there though, and it, I'm I'm very excited and very happy with the way it's going. And uh, you know, feel rest assured that it is it is underway, which is the most important thing. I say that to Chris every year. He says, what's the next book about? And I say, I don't know. It's not finished yet. Also, Lee, there is the grand mini tradition. It's unofficial, but I'm claiming it as a tradition of uh, of you coming on the Empire podcast and telling us the name of the next book. You did that with Make Me, and you did it with Past Tense. So, can we ask? Have you got a name for the for book twenty six yet? And are you willing to share it with the listeners? If we had one, we would be totally willing to share it. But it's been a mixture. Actually, the series. Some of them have had the titles before the first word is written. Some of them have not had the titles until the end. And I think this is going to be the latter case. So uh, yeah, if you want any Empire podcast listener who wants to win a free book, suggest a title. Here's a title for you. Seven Past Liverpool. (laughs) Yeah. All right. (laughs) That's what we'll do. You got it. We got it indeed. Lee, Andrew, it's been a pleasure. Thank you so much indeed for your time, guys. Thank you. Thank you, Chris. Thanks very much. Cheers. Okay, so that was Lee Child and Andrew Child. And as I said, The Sentinel is available now in all good and evil bookshops. Chris, I can't help but be a tiny bit disappointed because when you said Lee Child, I mm. thought you had to record an interview <laughs> with Baby Yoda. My heart, my heart skipped, it soared, it sang. And then I realised, no, you meant Lee Child, not the child. But we'll get him one day. We'll get him on the pod. For a second, I thought during the interview about making a joke about that, but then I didn't know how much Lee Child knows about The Mandalorian. And I didn't want that thing where Nick and I once made it. We interviewed Roger Moore together, and I think one of us made a joke about Inception, and he didn't know what Inception was. And so then we had to spend a minute or so explaining the concept of Inception to a bloke in his 80s and that went down well because I don't know I don't know the concept of Inception I've seen it a couple of times now and I still don't understand it you know yeah. Christ knows what would happen imagine if Pierce Brosnan asked you to explain Tenet what would you, what would you do what would you say uh, here's Pierce Brosnan he, Pierce Brosnan okay here we go Pierce Brosnan he's going hello 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 Helen I've never seen a Tenet oh, is it a good film what is it about yes it's about things that go backwards in time meeting things that go forwards in time to confusing effect. Grand! Explaining films to Pierce Brosnan is our new segment. <laughs> <laughs> Love it. The people can't get enough of it already. Anyway, uh, yes, we'll be, this, we'll be talking about Lee Child, the child, on a Mandalorian spoiler specials. My God, Ben, thank you for giving me a segue opportunity, and uh, <laughs> which are out every Monday around 10 a.m. or so. We record them on Friday. We put them out on Monday. Uh, episode 3, Chapter 11 is out this week. Uh, we're very, very excited about that. More plugs to come later on, but for now, it is time to talk about this week's movie news. Uh, it's actually a fair amount of movie news. Who wants to be the first person to stop me talking about Mike Banning? Someone else talk about something else. <laughs> Shall we not? Uh, can we get it out of the way early on? Night has fallen. How can the same shit happen to the same guy four times? Um. <laughs> well, in fairness, like he's in the Secret Service, like so that is something of a half excuse. You know, mm. he's not like a beat cop who keeps getting caught in, you yeah. know, international whatever. Yeah. Uh, that 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 is the most believable part of this. <laughs> Everything else is the problem. It's like, where are you, where are you from? <laughs> it's like, 
<laughs> for being the main thing. Uh, from Ireland. Uh, so, Lee, uh, this is the news that Mike Banning, the hero of the Has Fallen trilogy, <laughs> what an incredible name for a trilogy, uh, Has Fallen trilogy is now going to be a quadrilogy and he is back for more. Jerry Butler is back, back, back with his director, Rick Roman Waugh, with, who directed Angel Has Fallen and the forthcoming Greenland. And clearly they've, they've clicked finally that Jerry De Niro has found his Marty Scorsese in <laughs> Rick Roman Waugh, I think. That's wow. oh, what a yeah. glorious, glorious synchronicity going on there. It's beautiful. Uh, so they're, they're back for the fourth, which is entitled Night Has Fallen, in which Mike Banning presumably has to help M. Night Shyamalan after he falls over. I don't understand exactly <laughs> what's going on here, but I'm excited nonetheless. I, I'm more mixed on it um, because I... I actually had a lot of time for Olympus Has Fallen back in the day. I I enjoyed it. There are a couple of sort of really good moments, memorable moments, which I still enjoy watching. And then London Has Fallen is very racist and very xenophobic, and it's not good. The only thing I remember it for, well, there's two things I remember it for. The amazing TV spot, which made uh, shit's gonna get stabby. Um, a big thing on Twitter for a day, which I'll never forget. It's a 16 second TV spot. Type into Google, shit's gonna get stabby. It's amazing. It's amazing. Shit's gonna get stabby. And then also in that movie, Mike Banning has that now iconic line. <laughs> I don't know about you, but I'm thirsty as fuck. <laughs> I don't which, know about you, but I'm thirsty as fuck, Mr. President. Which is just unbelievable. So apart from yeah. those two things, that movie is terrible. Did you see Angel Has Fallen? I've not seen Angel Has Fallen. Glorious return to form for the franchise. It really is. Listen, that's not get carried away here. This is a four-star franchise. <laughs> and I mean that cumulatively. But you got to respect. you got to respect. The hustle. Yeah, absolutely. You know, fucking go for it. Why not, Jerry? Why not? Absolutely. I just hope that he actually does ban someone called Mike this time, because that would be glorious. <laughs> Mike banning, banning Mikes. I am there for that. Maybe he'll ban Mikes and like we just won't be able to hear him very well. I hate fucking podcasts. I hate them. <laughs> So somebody replied to Empire on Twitter uh, uh, about this news saying as somebody who uh, has real uh, genuine uh, affection for these as guilty pleasure films felt that the third one actually wrapped it up in quite a nice way and was slightly disappointed that there's going to be a fourth one. <laughs> Chris can you can you comment on that at all? I have not seen any of these films. <laughs> None of them. Are you hit in ben. the fields by by uh, what's the third one? Angel has fallen. Yeah. Angel has fallen. Did, did it Angel get you in the fallen. heart? <laughs> No. <laughs> no, it didn't get me in the heart. Listen, all right, if we could talk about these films in slightly, slightly less ironic tones uh, for a second. The the first one is was a cheap and cheerful attempt to nobble, I guess, or you know, to rival, shall we say, perhaps not nobble, to rival White House Down. So it was made and it got out before White House Down and it made a bigger splash than White House Down. And again, it has all the same problems. Amon, you said, I mean, it's their their politics are questionable, mm-hmm. their uh, r- racial attitudes are questionable. Um, well, I'm saying these sentences and I'm wondering why I like these movies, but uh, <laughs> but. The, the first film alone, and this, the first film alone has the line, let's play a game of fuck off. You go you first. Go first. <laughs> so that's enough for me. Um, no, they're not, they're not great films, but, uh, they're, they're, you know, they're pleasing enough action diversions when you're watching them. Angel has fallen. 
did it wrap it up? I don't know. It brought Nick Nolte back as Mike Banning's... Well, not back. It brought Nick Nolte into the franchise as Mike Banning's unintelligible dad. And uh, oh, after yeah. all the action of the movie, it ends uh, on what feels like a post-credit sting of the two of them having taken a spa day together. I, I shit you not, that is the ending of Angel Has what? Fallen. Mike Banning and his dad go to a spa. That is the ending of the movie. You should have been leading with that all this time. I would have seen it time ago. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know about you, but I'm my skin's dry as fuck. <laughs> I would watch that. Yeah, I would watch him just have a spa day. I think that'd be fucking hilarious. People go in for a, uh, an action movie and just get a lecture on skincare and the importance of, you know, retinol and shit. Oh my God, can you imagine? Anyway, um, speaking of spa days, um, Jeff Nichols is going to write and direct the third Quiet Place movie. Hmm. So what do we think about this? There's going to be a third Quiet Place movie written by Jeff Nichols, the guy behind uh, Midnight Special and Loving. And uh, it's based on an idea by John Krasinski, which sounds an awful lot like the theme tune of Garth Marenghi's Dark Place, originally based on Melodies Whistled by Garth Marenghi. But, <laughs> you know, this is the Krasinski first now, I guess. And we just live in it. I mean, there are worse places to live, probably. Um, but uh, <laughs> no, I, yeah, I guess we don't know anything about this. It's it's really hard to to speculate too much. Mm. I feel like Midnight Special in particular had a little bit of a quiet placey feel about it, mm-hmm. mm, yeah. um, with with the sort of you know the Americana and the the sense of you know being chased, being under pressure, being isolated, rural settings, all the rest, uh, small family unit. You know, it feels very much in that wheelhouse. So it, yeah. it feels like a good yeah. fit in that sense. Yeah, and Take Shelter had that real. Cr- sort of creeping yes. sense of dread mm. to it as well that's got a real sort of uneasy vibe to the whole thing he yeah, knows how to get so. amazing performances out of people as well and you think that the part of the power of a quiet place is how flipping great those performances are and how much you love those characters and want them to be safe it's not just about the the monster tension it's about making you really deeply care for those characters um mm. it'll be interesting it sounds like it's going to be slightly spin-offy it's not going to be involving any of the characters that we know and maybe they're pitching it that way because obviously a Quiet Place Part 2 isn't out yet and we don't know who's going to survive, Mm. who's going to be around. It's weird that um, there are people out there who have seen A Quiet Place Part 2. It was screening sort of just before lockdown. Yeah, yeah, New York. Yeah. Yeah. Before before the first lockdown hit, like, I had received my multimedia tickets to that screening. Yeah, me too. Um, And then I I have them as, as a sort of reminder of what was, what we lost. Yeah. Yeah, it, how how's that for a bit of apocalyptic detail? <laughs> Very yeah. fitting. There is still a sense of trepidation because obviously the first one is so great and kind of came out of nowhere. And even doing a sequel, I, I hope that sequel is going to be great. But it was like mm. the first one was so good and didn't need any more. If you've got a great idea for the second one, which it sounds like John Krasinski had somewhere he he wanted to take it, mm-hmm. um, that then go for it. But um, but I, I I hope that it's an idea that stands up to multiple tellings and multiple different characters it, 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 it it's hard. Like it does yeah mm. i mean th- th- there's got to be a lot of other human stories out there but yeah what you can wring out of the the monsters that can't hear you if you keep quiet i i don't know how much you can do with that without it starting to feel at least a bit samey i mean, i love a, i love a quiet place we, mm. we gave it the spoiler special treatment and uh i wouldn't hear a word said against it but the more you examine the logic of that world the less yep. it makes sense yeah what if you sneeze? What if you sneeze? What if you snore? What if you make a noise when you're asleep? You know, what, how, how can you possibly have a baby in that world? Yeah. Babies yeah. cry without warning. Yeah, all like, the time. How can you, you can't lock that shit down. 
but not just that, but just the 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 way that the invasion happened because I guess it is an invasion. And, you know, at the beginning, we see newspapers and whatnot, and there's even a newspaper headline going, it's sound. Well, let me tell you, it's not sound, mate. It's absolutely terrible. But, uh, mm. oh, I see what I mean. <laughs> they've, they've discovered that it's sound that triggers, the, that go. attracts yeah. the baddies. Yeah. Mm. So, but that paper was then printed on a printing press, which makes noise. So how does that work? And then it was Maybe distributed around the world in trucks that make noise. Mm, okay, let's go with that. Let's go with that. <laughs> it's one of those things, where if, you, if you just push the domino a little bit, all the dominoes fall. <laughs> and the dominoes making noise is, is a bad thing as well. No thing. dominoes. Do not play dominoes. I'm the world dominoes champ. I'm fucked. Uh, speaking of spy days, Jordan Peele's third movie as director has been given a date, July 2022. So adding a bit of COVID tax on there, July 2026 oh is when we'll see Jordan Peele's third movie as writer-director. And we know even less about that than we do about Quiet Place 3, or whatever the hell it's going to be called. All we know is that it's going to be a horror film, and Jordan Peele's going to write and direct it, and that Sold. should be enough for us. Yeah. <laughs> yes, yep. I'm in. Uh, yep. And speaking of of things that we just can't wait for and, and uh, you know, are absolutely sold on on paper, Dwayne Johnson is rebooting <laughs> the Scorpion game. I knew that's what you thought you were going somewhere else with that for a second, <laughs> okay. We have said in the past, I think, have we not, that people should really reboot or remake average to bad movies rather than great movies because mm-hmm. there is room for improvement. I'm still here for anyone who wants to reboot and redo Van Helsing properly this yes. time with, a, an actu- with an actual plot that isn't just going to different castles over and over again. But keep Anna Silvestri's score because it's great. There you go. And you can even keep <laughs> Hugh Jackman's hair. I'm not going to argue with you. The point is, maybe this is the way forward. Maybe someone should reboot shit like the Scorpion King and maybe, (laughs) and I'm just spitballing here, give the VFX team more than five seconds, you know, to do the Scorpion effect. I know that was The Mummy Returns and not The Scorpion Mm -hmm. King, but even so, I Mm -hmm. think it stands. I think those effects still hold up. In in The Mummy Returns? I think they look exactly as good now as they did on the day they were released. So yeah, you're right in that sense, Chris. Yeah, That was the very limit of what the Commodore 64 could do back then. So (laughs) I guess there's something to be said for the fact that The Rock is now, he's gotten to so big to the point where he can now bring back characters from a time in his career when he was still figuring things out. I mean, he doesn't have to. Mm. Yeah, <laughs> he, he could not. He I mean, that's another perfect, option. He, he yeah. is literally the highest paid star in the world and has been for at yep. least the last two years. Mm-hmm. He made, I think, $89 million last year just from his uh, film work. Same. So, you know... <laughs> Like he does have a choice here. I just want to be clear about that. But but you're right. I mean, maybe yeah. maybe this is the the way to do it. Sir, step away from the reboot. Keep your hands where I can see them. And it's set. It's going to be set in contemporary times because that worked so well for the Mummy reboot. I oh, guess boy. so. The Mummy reboot. Oh there yeah, was one, there yeah. was a Mummy reboot. Speaking speaking of. Speaking of spa days, uh, Jake Gyllenhaal is going to star in Michael Bay's Ambulance, which is nice. So this is a thriller. It's going to be shot in lockdown. And it's Michael Bay, Jake Gyllenhaal, uh, Isaac Gonzalez, good people. And so Jake Gyllenhaal is going to be, uh, apparently he's going to be one of two brothers. He's going to be the elder brother and they steal an ambulance. They're they're robbers or something and they steal an ambulance out of desperation. But uh-oh, wouldn't you know, there's a paramedic and I believe a pregnant lady or someone needing lots of attention at least in the back of the ambulance as they go on a on a, on a run trying to outrun cops and whatnot. Dun, 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 yeah. Morality play, action thriller, it's all there. 
I hope that Jake Gyllenhaal brings a little bit of just humanity and likability <laughs> to this film because, like, what what was that? What was the Michael Bay Netflix movie Six Underground? Six Underground. Yeah. Which mm. the whole point of that film is that it was trying to be as obnoxious as possible at all times with maximum Ryan Reynolds and maximum Michael Bay, and it achieved in those aims. And it was horrible to watch. It was mm. just not fun. It, it, it should have been big, stupid fun, but it wasn't enjoyable because it was so in your face the whole time that it was just way too much. And we we do like a bit of Bayhem. Like good Bayhem is very enjoyable. So. Bayhem yeah. with a bit of Jake Gyllenhaal being likable and being slightly sensitive and it could be a good mix. Or here's the other option. Jake Gyllenhaal in weird mode is also yes. acceptable. Yes. Jake Gyllenhaal yes. in the sack lunch bunch mode. <laughs> Jake Gyllenhaal <laughs> in Okja mode <laughs> means yes. Michael right? Bay would be oh my crazy. God. So here for this. If it's Mr. Music, if it's two brothers exactly. and one of them's Mr. Music, then I'm yeah, and the other one's John Mulaney, then this oh movie God. has just changed in my mind. I completely. want it to be John Mulaney. Oh. John Mulaney and Mr. Music go on a, on a run in a stolen ambulance with people in the back, and then the sack lunch bunch come along and try and save the day. And it's so that's the movie that should be made right now. You. Listen, Michael Bay needs that third film to be in the Criterion Collection. It's been a long time <laughs> since The Rock and Armageddon. Yeah. And he needs a third. And he's he's given a good goes. The Island, Bad Boys 2, Pearl Harbor. And they're all masterpieces. And they all <laughs> came close. Way. But they didn't quite get in. So I think Ambulance hey, is the one. Transformers, Dark of the Moon. I mean, it, 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 I, I still can't believe that Criterion hasn't gone for that yet. So surely it's only a matter of time. They need to go for The Last Night, which is the the one that oh, has no. Sir Anthony oh, Hopkins no. uh, drag racing. No. and no. Um, it's so and bad. Please, I paid to see that. Please don't remind me. <laughs> Dark of the Moon. Dark of the Moon is the worst one. Dark of the Moon no! is like is no, a horrible. No, the last night is the worst. The last night is the worst one. No, the the last night is like is crazy stupid, but it's not as horribly obnoxious and grim as as Dark of no. the Moon. Crazy stupid. Do not love. <laughs> the last night is awful. I mean, I Look, none of them are good <laughs> apart from one ish. Yeah. This is true. It's another four-star franchise where it's cumulative. <laughs> yeah, I agree with that. But like two, three, and four, at least I can say that they have their moments. Like I'm a big Optimus Prime sort of fanboy, and in all of those movies, he at least has one moment where he gets to do something cool. And in the fifth one, mm. that's just drowned out by the just stupidity of that film. And mm -hmm. yeah. I, I just remember watching it, being on that screen and just shaking my head and, and laughing at uh, just the craziness that I was watching. It just brings a smile to my face thinking uh, thinking of the name Cade Yeager. That was <laughs> yeah. a real name that they tried to give to a person. That shouldn't be enough. You should you should need more than that. You know, like Mike Banning's a great name, but look at the look the has fallen films. They don't just rest in the laurels of a great name. They add great characterization, great dialogue, great action scenes, great story, great plot, oh great God. villains into the mix. Wow, you're just convincing yourself here, aren't you? Just waiting. Honestly, the Criterion Collection is going to any day now. Any day now. Any day. The Criterion Collection has fallen. <laughs> <laughs> They would give it its uh, official name, the Trilogy of Shites. <laughs> it would be in a fancy box set. Oh, 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 fucking shots fired. Shots fired. Yeah, I right. feel like that was a, a, a name that they, that they lovingly created for themselves, no? What? I feel, I feel like I read that somewhere. I feel, uh, Hang on. You're, so you're saying that the makers of the Has Fallen trilogy have dubbed their own movies the Trilogy of Shites? <laughs> 
I've definitely seen that somewhere, but Are now you I'm Googling it. At the moment? What's, what's happening? Have you had the vaccine early? Yeah, it was very experimental. <laughs> you, you got the good stuff. <laughs> it doesn't appear to be on the internet. That may be... That's because you made it up, you absolute maniac. Anyway, last but not least, this news dropped last week just as I had put the podcast up. Wouldn't you bloody well know it? And it is the news that Fantastic Beast 3 uh, has jettisoned Johnny Depp from the mix following his defeat in a libel case brought against the Sun newspaper regarding allegations of domestic abuse in his relationship with his ex-wife Amber Heard. Depp issued a statement saying that Warner Brothers had asked him to stand down from the film and from the role and that he had Agreed. So, he has gone. Gellert Grindelwald is no more, at least played by Johnny Depp, because there are reports that they are actively recasting the role with Matt Mickelson. And uh, what do we think of all this business? I think it is... It's a very complex situation. For me personally, this is a good move. I think, I guess we can't go into the, the case itself too much, but I just think it's better for everyone involved that Johnny Depp is not involved in this franchise going forward. And I think um, not that you should necessarily take that out of it, but if you do take that out of it and focus purely on the performance, I did not love him as Grindelwald. I think mm-hmm. because Johnny Depp's whole thing is playing kooky spooky dudes it just means that Grindelwald becomes another over affected kind of weirdy oddball guy and I never really got quite the sense of menace that I think you're supposed to get from him it just feels like another slightly wacky Johnny Depp performance so I mean the Mads Mikkelsen thing isn't by no means confirmed that seems like it's just uh, their initial sort of thoughts for casting I would Mm. very very much welcome that casting I think he would Mm be brilliant and you just instantly and know that he could bring the intensity and bring that slightly heightened sense to the character without it feeling like a sort of yeah spooky caricature i mean there's it's a very very naughty situation and there is a lot going on with that franchise right now that is very troubling especially as somebody like harry potter is basically my religion like i grew up mm. on it i love it so deeply and it it hurts that there is so much negativity um, around that whole situation at the moment. As an initial step, it is a good step for me. I don't quite know how you go towards rectifying some of the other things that need to be very specifically addressed. But for now, I think this is the right move. And if they can recast it with somebody as great as Mads Mikkelsen or just somebody else who could really bring that character to life, that character specifically, um, I would welcome that. Yeah, I think I think Mad Mickelson has the kind of slinky sexiness that the character probably should have from what they seem to be going for and, and from what we know about his backstory with, with Jude Law. I feel like there should be something there. And I think Johnny Depp went for that. But like you say, he was a bit too weird and a bit too out there to really convey either menace or kind of frankly sexiness um in that last film so it just it just made a, a messy for me and i would far rather see for many reasons like i'm completely leaving aside any of the legal ones i would far rather see someone like mads mickelson in the role i mean i genuinely groaned when colin farrell turned into johnny depp in the first one and i think that predated any of this you know stuff about his personal life so it's just 
I didn't want him there. <laughs> like, I think in the right role, you know, he has obviously done great work in the past. I'm no argument there, but I just, he didn't fit for me with my conception of the character at all. So I'm kind of okay with this. I mean, yeah, you're right. That, that franchise has a huge number of problems, not least the fact that after two films, they seem to have vaguely maybe started to address their overall story. And it's taken two films to get here. And I'm just kind of, a little bit exasperated with it. And I think a lot of people are. And I think there's a there's a real lack of anticipation for part three at the moment in film discussion, right? Generally. So, you know, a few decisions like this can only move us in the right direction because quite frankly, we shouldn't be feeling this way about a, a property that could be great. You know, when you heard Wizarding World in 1920s, I for one was absolutely thrilled. I thought that could be incredible. I think I thought it could be really, really cool. And and instead, we've just had this meh the whole time. Mm. Yeah, exasperation is kind of where I'm at with this franchise right now. There's just so much toxicity associated with it, not only with the depth situation, but also with the JK Rowling of it all. There's so, it's a controversy magnet right now. And Many fans, and you know, I, I went into you know this to the new franchise as a Harry Potter fan. I wasn't like a big Harry Potter mega fan, but many people who were have sort of distanced themselves from this franchise in the wake of all these things that have happened in the last few months. You know, Mads Mikkelsen, I'm a big fan of him, but his potential casting doesn't change my mind on where I stand with him right now. Mm. So Denai Gurira uh, will star in The Fighting Shirley Chisholm, uh, which is the mm. story of the first black congresswoman, Shirley Chisholm, and her historic 1972 presidential run, which is really exciting because that historical figure, I think, has long deserved her day on the big screen. And it's great to see it happening at this time. You think about the mm. recent US election, all the black political figures and really heroes of today, like Stacey Abrams, they are all following in Chisholm's footsteps. So I'm very eager mm. to, to see that to, to see yeah. that movie. Also, we should mention Empire debuted uh, some exclusive images from Gunpowder Milkshake earlier this week. And this thing looks very, very, very cool. There's one particular image of Michelle Yeoh, Angela Bassett and Carla Gugino. And honestly, I want to make it my desktop background. I want to make it my Twitter banner. I might make it my profile picture. It is awesome. <laughs> what a great name for the film as well. Gunpowder Milkshake. Right? This is like so the good. Karen Gillan's sort of all-female assassin movie. Um, yeah. And already we haven't seen, aside from these sills, we haven't seen a single moving frame of this movie. And yet it is its existence is already entirely justified by the videos yep. those guys were putting out while they were making it. Just a pure, pure <laughs> joy. If you scroll back on Karen Gillan's Instagram, on all of their Instagrams and I don't know what else they were. Do they have TikToks? Do people over 20 use TikTok? Um, <laughs> they do. Joyous, joyous videos uh, from while they were making mm. that film. Mm. Looks like a lot of fun. Karen Gillan is very good at social media, by the way. Mm. Mm. I mean, you're, you're talking to the master. So. <laughs> oh, really? How's your TikTok going, Chris? It's fine. I'm, I'm having my pacemaker installed next oh, week, Helen, so thank you very much <laughs> okay. for asking. Okay, so now we move on inexorably into the reviews section. We're starting off with a f film. I can't believe this achievement, actually. So Steve McQueen, uh, his last movie was Widows. It's only a couple of years ago. Mm -hmm. And now he has somehow made five feature-length films under the banner Small Axe that are going to be shown 
on BBC One over the next five weeks. And the first one of those is Mangrove, which is on Sunday, BBC One, 9pm. How has he done this? This is what we call a flex. Um. <laughs> it's what we call multitasking, isn't it? I mean, yeah. five feature-length films all tackling different aspects of, of Black British history and Black British culture. Mind-blowing. I'm on, I know you've seen a few of these, but let's, let's talk specifically about Mangrove. First of all, yeah. what can you say about this? Yeah, so just to set up a little bit, Mangrove's focus is on Frank Critchlow, who's played by Sean Parks. He's the owner of a Caribbean restaurant in Notting Hill that is repeatedly raided by racist police officers led by PC Frank Pulley, which is, who's played by Sam Spruill. Um, and eventually it leads to peaceful protests known as the Mangrove March. They are organised by British Black Panther leader, Althea Jones-LeCoint, played by Letitia Wright of Black Panther fame, which uh, Frank reluctantly joins, but then he and others are wrongly arrested and charged with incitement to riot, and they are put on trial for their lives. So earlier this year, if you told me that Steve McQueen would make a better courtroom drama than Aaron Sorkin, I'm not sure I would have believed you, but the courtroom drama stuff in Mangrove is better than the courtroom drama stuff in The Trial of the Chicago 7. I actually watched them fairly close together, and The Trial of the Chicago 7 was much came off much worse than Mangrove. Um, and I think part of the reason for that is that in Mangrove, the black people who are on trial, they get to represent themselves. That's not something you often see in a film like this, because normally you've got a white lawyer uh, sort of views really the focus and sort of sticking up for them and trying to defend them. The black characters get to defend themselves in this film, and that leads to a number of very satisfying sequences when they get to cross-examine uh, racist police officers like PC Frank Pulley, um, which are really, really great to watch. Um, and the screenplay, I also love it for how Frank is, an, is, is a complex and reluctant and really unwilling mm. hero. The, the youthful optimism of someone like Althea Jones, the current play by Letitia Wright, who is fantastic, by the way, is sort of juxtaposed with his world weariness uh, in a really sort of effective way. Um, you know, this, this, this is a guy who gambles, who has other vices, who has a defeatist attitude, but we still sort of get all the heroism from that character regardless. And I think that's not mm. only a great screenplay, but also fantastic acting. I think Sean Parts is the MVP of this film. In addition to that, I really love the cinematography from Shabia Kirchner, who worked with uh, Steve McQueen across all five of the Small Axe films. Um, the first hour especially is very, very vibrant and really sort of puts you evokes the time and place of being in the West Indian community with the food, with the song, with the dance, which is not something which you often see from uh, McQueen. You know, McQueen, Steve McQueen, as much as, as much as I love him, I think he's a fantastic director. You, didn't, you don't typically go to that guy when it comes to Black Joy. Um, <laughs> you think about, think about think of the, some of the scenes in 12 Years a Slave, for instance, it's not exactly Black, black Joy. And he's not, I, I, that's not to say that his films aren't great. It's just not typically what he does. But across Small Acts, uh, we see a lot of that, especially in this film and also in Lover's Rock. Um, and I just, I loved seeing that on screen as well. So yeah, I, we, we, we really like this one. I think we gave it five stars and mm, I think it deserves every single one of them. Yeah, five, five, five stars qualifies I think as we quite like this one <laughs> uh, just a it's interesting bit. yeah it's interesting you brought up trial of Chicago 7 I, I don't know that this is as diminished as 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 it is for you I think they're great companion pieces I, I really do especially mm. since they're almost happening at the same time in mm -hmm. in, right. in culture um uh what happens with Bobby seal for example in in trial of Chicago 7 was happening around about the same time as a, as as mangrove 
I thought this movie was fascinating and fantastic and just felt so real. And I felt, I felt a sense of mounting anger uh, throughout mm. the movie. Um, and that's what I felt. You know, I, I can't imagine what black people in this country must feel watching this movie and seeing the iniquities and the injustices and that were heaped, uh, heaped upon them. Um, mm. not so long ago. Anytime we're dealing with this t- kind of subject matter where you see this, uh, sort of, brutal treatment of black people, there's always a sense of, of mounting anger. Um, doesn't matter if it's this, doesn't matter if it's 12 years a slave, doesn't matter if it's Soma, there's always going to be that anger there. Um, you know, the, a, a word which people have sort of tied to this film a lot, and it's not sort of unwarranted, is timely as well. Um, we're still, still seeing the same sort of stuff happening in today's world. So, you know, there's anger everywhere you look, but as I, as uh, I said recently, films are empathy machines and that's why, it's part of the reason why they're so important. And often we look to the past to inform our present. And this is another film which does that in a very effective way. I, I think this being a British film and a London film it plays a big part in that as well, because when there were a lot of the Black Lives Matter protests and stuff over the summer, there was a sense uh, a lot of the stories that we get told of this are American stories of of police brutality right. and I think people know that it happens here but they don't see as much in the same way sort of very specific examples of when it happens here and so having this film that speaks to a very specific incident and a historical incident but that does feel very present as well to say no this is this is an, a st- systemic issue this is mm-hmm. us this is a British issue as well as, a, as an American issue um, I think it, it, we need that I really liked uh, the way that they represented themselves the fact that we haven't mentioned um Jack Loudon, uh, a white right. guy turned up who I didn't recognise, so I figured it must be Jack Loudon because I can never recognise him when he appears on You've screen. You've met Jack Loudon. I know. You've yeah, <laughs> yeah. Jack Loudon. And your first question was, who are you? <laughs> <laughs> sorry. Yeah. sorry, sorry, mate. You, you, you can't sit there with Jack Loudon so coming I in just, later on. <laughs> if, there's, if, there's, if there's a really good performance and I'm sitting there going, God, that's, that guy's really good. I've never seen yeah. him before. It's probably Jack Loudon. I mean, anyway, he turns up. He's very good. And I liked... Yeah his role in it as well because I thought he was just there enough to be helpful but not enough mm. to to steal the spotlight I thought that was really really yeah. good I, I mean as the character not not as the actor although White probably that too. that's always a yeah, yeah you, not, that not that at all, at all. yeah it, very much ally not savior which I thought was good um and I just thought it was it was uh neatly done I thought it was you know beautifully put together great great writing in the script great balance of build up and sort of trial scenes and payoff um and and you know, obviously, just an incredible, as you say, infuriating, passionate, exciting, absolutely horrific thing to watch. You know, mm. and and just a, a bit of history that I think not enough people know about, and more of us should. I think to echo what all you guys said, um, yeah, like Chris said, it does feel very real. I felt from minute one that I was there. I was in that world. It is incredibly immersive. And I think to what Amon said, I think it actually does a really good job of, it is a story of a lot of hardship and injustice and unfairness, but it is a very balanced telling of that story with Mm. a lot of joy, with um, a sense of real sense of getting these people's lives across and not Mm. just the hardship that they go through. And I think obviously in 12 Years a Slave, there is a lot of lingering on very, very uncomfortable imagery. And I think it's really interesting in this, that the the moments that that Steve McQueen chooses to linger on, I think he gets across the sense of brutality in the police raids really effectively without gratuitously showing Mm -hmm. brutalized bodies. Mm -hmm. There's a really, really effective shot of a colander 
on a kitchen mm-hmm. floor that just hangs there for a long time that gets across everything that you would need to say without it being an uncomfortable, painful image, but it gets everything across that you need to. And I think he chooses those moments really effectively to tell this story, to make this a powerful story, to to show effectively the brutality of it without making a spectacle of that. And I think that is very, very carefully done in a way mm. that's really, really commendable. Absolutely. Uh, and shout out quickly to my birthday brother, uh, Malgai Kirby as well, who plays Darkest Hal, who is a figure that I think we all grew up watching on TV, very prominent campaigner for black rights no just me all right okay so anyway, yeah. <laughs> he's really good in this and uh, as is everybody um this is a fantastic film five stars can't wait to see what he has cooked up steve mcqueen for the rest of small acts bbc one nine o'clock this sunday next up is a movie that's on netflix in a couple of weeks time but the lockdown is only in england right now there are cinemas open in scotland and wales and so hillbilly elegy which is the new film from ron howard is opening in those countries i'm not sure about northern ireland yeah i think it's reopened uh, but check your, yeah. it's a reopen so check check whether it's playing in cinemas northern ireland because sometimes northern ireland gets left behind cinematically speaking uh but we'll probably dig into this film in greater detail when it's on netflix in a couple of weeks time but for now for the good people of scotland wales and possibly northern ireland Ben. The film is Hillbilly Elegy, directed by Ron Howard. What's this movie about and is it any good? So this is a multi-generational story of uh, J.D. Vance, who, when we meet him, he's a Yale law student, uh, but he's had a very difficult upbringing in uh, Kentucky and Ohio with a mum played by Amy Adams, who is addicted to drugs, and a cantankerous grandma uh, played by Glenn Close, who... Uh, sort of helped him get to where he is with a lot of tough love but an emphasis on the toughness and it's a a story about the sort of cycles in his life of uh, violence and abuse and addiction of trying to help his mum and trying to make his way out of this situation Uh, and it's based on J.D. Vance's uh, memoir which is also called Hillbilly Elegy Um, and it is a it's a weird film because I think to an extent its heart is in the right place of trying to give a voice to a very specific sort of white working class American experience, a life. It is his real life. It is J.D. Vance's experiences and expressing some very, very tough issues. Like I said, it deals a lot with addiction and um, poverty and all sorts of horrible stuff. And at the same time, it feels quite saccharine. It's a Ron Howard film. He's a very safe pair of hands. He There's no bells and whistles here, um, but he is a very solid filmmaker. And I think what you end up with is a very underwhelmingly generic film dealing with Mm -hmm. some very difficult things that could make for a really, really interesting telling that could dig into some of these issues in a really powerful and meaningful way. And I think the whole way along, uh, Howard's film sort of, it skirts on the surface of things. It feels very surface level. And you've got amazing performances, amazing people involved. I think Amy Adams does as as good as she can with what she's given. It, it, It she is a great performer. I think obviously there is always Oscar talk around these sort of big showy films and it would be a real shame if Amy Adams won for this over all the other things that she should have won for. Yep. Same with Glenn Close. Yeah, well, and and so the Glenn Close thing, I 
at the very end of this film, uh, there is footage of the real people and the makeup that they've done on Glenn Close does make her look mm. like this real person. At the same time, until you see that photo, she looks like she's wearing crazy makeup and it's super distracting the whole way through. And it looks like, mm-hmm. as we said at the start of the show, like a weird SNL yeah. parody 30 Rock yeah. thing. It's mm-hmm. like people emotionally shouting at each other for two hours <laughs> in a way that's quite draining and it's just it's a strange mix of being but it's not a podcast <laughs> we, should, we, should, we should make that clear <laughs> it's, it's a really grim unrelentingly grim story that by the end of it you also don't feel like you've been through anything because it's kind of gloopy and sentimental at the same time what, what did you guys think I, I think that this film forgets that in order for those big Oscar shouty high emotional moments to work, you need to you need you needed to put in the work beforehand to, to really make sure that the audience gets to know these characters. This is a film for me that was desperately in need of more nuance in basically every department. Uh, mm-hmm. which is a damn shame because I think Glenn Close does some really good work here. She's she, she she does get some softer moments in in addition to sort of the loud, brash, unapologetic stuff. And she plays those really, really well. I think it's also beautifully shot by Marisa Alberti, who first caught my eye with that amazing one-take fight sequence in Creed. Uh, she does a lot of good work here. But yeah, just again, desperately in need of nuance. And then the other thing which I would add is that Freda Pinto is a fantastic actress, but she is criminally... Mm-hmm. underused in this film and that is a massive she's thing. on the phone the whole film every okay. single film is her on the phone what the fuck <laughs> it's mad i mean if frida pinto is your girlfriend you don't just call her up you go over right. and see her i mean come on seriously yeah yeah it, yes. this was it, i have to agree with pretty much everything that's been said so far i just the i i didn't love the book i think it's it's written by a guy who is of a different political persuasion to me and he has a very mm-hmm. different take on what's wrong and what leads to this kind of situation than I do. And and I suspect Ron Howard might agree with me a little bit because I think he's stripped a lot of that kind of explanation out of the film and he's stripped a lot mm. of the sort of speechifying bits of the book out of the film. But what's left behind is just another kind of quote unquote, rust belt, you know, misery fest. And I don't know that we learn anything from it. I don't know that we see anything particular in it. I I don't know that it says nearly as much as I think it wants to say, um, as I think it's set out to say. And, you know, good performances, but I, I don't know what the point of it really was. Yeah. Um, and, and yeah, just because it's a best-selling book maybe doesn't mean it needs to be a film. I mean, the story of the movie, I texted you last night, the story of the Mm. movie is, you know, potentially rich dude goes home, sees his mum, has some flashbacks, goes back home again. So many flashbacks. Mm. And that's that's it. And there's it doesn't advance his character anyway in any great dramatic way. It all felt a little inert to me. But it's been getting a you know, it's been getting a bit of a kicking and we mm. gave it two stars. Our own fearless leader Terry White gave it two stars. You know, it's not a great film by any stretch of the imagination. I I think two is probably right, but yeah, I do you know, it's also mm-hmm. well made, well acted if you like that sort of thing. But uh, to echo Ben, if uh, Amy Adams and Glenn Close win Oscars for this we rhymed. <laughs> Two stars then for Hillbilly Elegy. Maybe we'll get into it in more detail when the movie comes out on Netflix in a couple of weeks' time. But two more movies that are on Netflix right the hell now for you to watch for your viewing pleasure. One of them is called Jingle Jangle, A Christmas Journey. 
I've never seen a movie that has Helen O'Hara's name on it more than this movie. <laughs> Not even The Christmas Chronicles 2, in which Kurt Russell and Goldie Hawn play Santa Claus and Mrs. Claus. Well, maybe that one. Yeah, that um, one. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Yeah, okay, maybe that one. Dis- disturbingly sexy Santa, Kurt Russell. Yeah. Um, yes. This is uh, no disturbingly mm. sexy Santa here, though. So this is that's a good no. that's the good news. Um, yes. This mm. is a sort of quasi nutcracker if you will um it's set in a sort of vaguely victorian steampunk world where felicia rashad sits down with <laughs> where her two set it's when? an adorable vi- quasi victorian steampunk world chris keep up <laughs> felicia rashad sits down with her two adorable grandchildren to tell them a story about a toy maker called geronicus jangle it's that kind of film if you're not here for the f- <laughs> names you don't deserve the film itself um who basically is the world's greatest toy maker. But one day his apprentice Gustafson uh, runs away with his greatest creation, who is voiced by Ricky Martin. I kid you not. Uh, and, and, and takes his, his book full of ideas with him and, and it just breaks his heart. This betrayal breaks his heart. And to make it worse, he soon after loses his wife. So cut to nearly 30 years later, I think it is. Jeronicus uh, has grown into Forrest Whitaker. Gustafson is now Keegan-Michael Key. And Jeronicus's adorable grandchild comes back because he he lost touch with his daughter, who's now played by Anika Nani Rose. Um, but his adorable grandchild, Journey, played by Madeline Mills, who is fantastic, comes mm-hmm. to stay with him. And do you know what? It might just rekindle his no. love of inventing. No, I'm serious. What? No it fucking could. way. Yeah. Come on. Really? <laughs> so basically, <What? laughs> this is essentially um, if The Greatest Showman was Christmassier, right? I'm <laughs> yes. blacker. And blacker, a lot blacker, absolutely. Um, and, and neither of those are bad things, obviously, in my book. Like, um, so a shout out, by the way, to the young Jeronicus is Justin Cornwell. Uh, Sharon Rose plays his his wife. They have a fantastic big opening number, which is so the greatest showman I kept expecting yeah. Hugh Jackman to burst out in the middle of it. Because have we mentioned this is a musical? I don't think we it have. It is a musical. Yes, we I haven't. haven't, yeah. haven't I was yeah. just, I'm building to that. Yeah. yeah. It's a musical. Uh, John Legend was among the team that wrote the songs. I don't think we can attribute all the songs to 100% John Legend, but you know, he's definitely in the mix. And the songs are pretty good, I think. I have to hear them a few more times before I decide how, how sticky they are in my head. But they're, they're pretty fun. And it's just fun. I'm not saying this is good necessarily in a traditional 100% good sense. I'm not sure labels apply to this movie. I I was watching it going good, bad, up, down, I don't know. All I know is that I've laughed. Uh, I've I've enjoyed Forrest Whitaker singing. He was good. I did not know he could sing like that. Yeah, Michael Key, Key, you know, really kicking and dancing and singing and the whole thing. Yeah. Yeah, it's, 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 it's super cute. It's a one star, five star film. It's a five star, one star film. It's one of those. It's, it's one of those. It and is also, it is. I want every single character's entire wardrobe in my size. I mean, just <laughs> everything is just gorgeous. Yeah. I'm on to this jingle your jangle. <laughs> well, my squad cast name today is Jamonicus Jawarman. So what do you think? Um, <laughs> the J is I thought it was people. a hillbilly elegy reference. <laughs> <laughs> No, I, I don't typically like to do this, but I really did think this was like a three-star film, a four-star experience, because I had a really fun time with this. I was texting Helen uh, sort of all the way through it, and some of, the, some of the songs are really, they're bangers. They're bangers all the way through this. And I do think Christ- it's got- Christmas crackers. <laughs> I, I, do, I do think it's got a ton of heart. It's about families. It's about forgiveness. It's about learning to heal. It's about new beginnings. It's about all of that stuff. Um, but there is some stuff, where it might be too much for audiences to, to for some audiences to go with because there's a lot of mass gobbledygook. I mean, if you think that Cap's <laughs> trigonometry 
in so the, the character in name. The, <laughs> if you think if you think that cat's trigonometry with his shield throwing in the MCU is weird, there's one bit where this guy throws a snowball. And I don't know what the hell is happening, but it curves yeah, it around. Ricochets. It's an- <laughs> it ricochets. It ricochets. <laughs> a snowball ricochets. Look. Don't look. He clearly does an equation first. It's fine. It's like yeah. deploying the algorithm. You know, it totally Deploy makes sense. Algorithm. Just let it. Just let it wash over you. And uh, just, and just start totally randomly fine. flying at one point at multiple points. It just doesn't make any sense. But but I it does I'm make, not fun yeah. with this. Yeah. But Christmas does make sense. It's about an imaginary exactly. man who gives people presents and toys and stuff. And that, that's fine. What do you mean imaginary? <laughs> you can't say imaginary in front of Ben. What? Sorry. Sorry. I, I, I'd i zoned out because uh, I was just thinking about how I haven't seen this film, but all of the um, sort of language side of it really puts me in the mind of uh, that Simpsons gag, the uh, contrabulous fab traption of Professor Horatio Huffnagel. <laughs> and also, uh, it's, a, it's a real Mr. Megorium's Wonder Emporium. It really movie. is. It's, yeah, it's, it's, yeah, like that, but I would say better than that film, at least. So. I, I like that the picture of Forrest Whitaker I've seen, he looks like a very Christmassy version of, uh, of Saw Gerrera from Rogue One. He really Yes. Maybe he is so great from Rogue One. Who knows? Who knows? But anyway, we gave this one. Helen, you reviewed this. I did. I gave it three, three stars. stars. Three stars, which if you add in Helen Christmas tax is 75 stars then for Yay. Jingle Jangle, a Christmas journey. <laughs> Come for the songs, stay for the songs, and the snowballs doing weird things. Uh, <laughs> Helen has to run to do a live slot on BBC Radio All-Star. Uh, so, oh. Helen, tell us real quick. Yep. One minute about Sophia Loren. <laughs> Let's reduce a legend to a one-minute slot. This is The Life Ahead, which is also on Netflix. Yeah, this is a lovely film, actually. It's directed by Eduardo Ponti, who is, as you may have guessed from his surname, her son, of course, because she was married to uh, Carla Ponti for years. Um, it's based on the book by Roman Gary and... Um, uh, Lorraine plays a former prostitute, a, a Holocaust survivor, who uh, now lives and supports herself by fostering children, especially for other streetwalkers, basically, is, is her terminology. So she'll either babysit or some of them have been abandoned or left behind with her for longer periods while their mothers go off mm-hmm. to work elsewhere. So she takes them in and looks after them. So uh, one day, a neighbour of hers, a doctor, uh, played by Renato Carpentier, um, Carpentieri, sorry, um, drops off Ibrahima Gay's Momo. Um, who is a fantastic character actor? He's he's a wonderful young man. He is um, he's a kid who's kind of running wild on the streets, getting in with a bad crowd. Um, mm-hmm. He meets uh, her for the first time. He meets Madame Madame Rosa for the first time when he steals her candlesticks in the market. But she takes him in anyway, and it's sort of about their bond. It's about her, you know, getting older and sicker and uh, more frail mm. while he's trying to sort his life out a little bit I think um, and it's a really I thought it was a really lovely story I thought it was this these really unlikely damaged people who find it very very difficult to connect with anyone finding a connection in each other and that was just lovely <laughs> that was a that was a long minute, but we got Sorry. there, and <laughs> it's all good. Uh, yes, I will talk more about this movie, but very very briefly because I think we should let Helen go and do Radio Ulster. So I'm going to skip to the goodbye part and say thank you and goodbye to our colleague of such lethal cunning, our geek queen Helen O'Hara. Toodaloo. Now fuck off and do Radio oh, Ulster. I will do then. All right. <laughs> oh, all right. I will fuck off. Um, say hello to them for me. Say hello to uh, Uncle Pat and Kieran and all those names. <laughs> Bye. Bye. Bye, Helen. Right, let's move on. Yeah, I'm going to echo what Helen said. What did she say? 
I'm going to echo what Helen said. This is a lovely, very, very sweet drama. Great performances. Sophia Loren still got it. This is her first film since nine. Do you remember that Farago that came out a few years ago? It was awful, wasn't it? Uh, but she was in it briefly. And this is her first lead role in ages. And clearly working with her son has brought out uh, the best in her. And the young kid, Ibrahim Gay, is fantastic uh, as Momo. Uh, nothing you haven't seen before a million times, but there's a, a lovely lyrical element to this as well, which I, I was very impressed and even occasionally moved by. Three stars then for The Life Ahead. And also out this week are two documentaries, uh, which I understand. I haven't seen them yet. I don't think you guys have either, but I understand on the Twitter grapevine, at least Billy is definitely worth your time. It is a documentary about the great Billy Holiday, Lady Sings the Blues and all that. One of the best voices of all time. And uh, that's well worth checking out if you can. I think it's out on VOD this week. Uh, and there's also a documentary called Lennox, which is about Lennox Lewis, the great British heavyweight champion as well, uh, which I am very, very keen to check out myself, being a big Lennox Lewis fan. So, yeah, fun stuff, fun stuff. So six films for you to choose from this week. And the best one is on BBC One. Can't say fairer than that. On that note... That is it for this week's Empire Podcast. Join us next week for more film-related fun, where we will be joined by MJ Bassett, the director of Rogue, in which Megan Fox's badass mercenary tries to avoid being eaten by an angry lion. Now, I said in last week's show that MJ would be on this week's show, but she'll be on next week's show. Not that complicated. I don't know why I had to explain it like that, but there you go. That's that's just basically how it works. Um, Also, I should point out that in the lockdown, and I know it's England only, but... um, because of the lockdown that'll be going on to December 2nd, and hopefully we'll stop there, uh, over the next few weeks to help alleviate boredom or for you guys and um, you know provide a little bit of Empire companionship to you, we are going to be doing two special things every week on our YouTube page, youtube.com forward slash Empire Magazine, and maybe also our Facebook Live page as well. The first one is a regular weekly quiz written by and hosted by me. Uh, We did the first one last week on Tuesday, just kind of feeling it out, feeling the technology, trying some stuff. Uh, The next one, and from every week thereafter, is going to be on Monday because we clashed with Bake Off and um, and the return of MasterChef to professionals and in a couple of weeks time Liverpool playing Ajax and these are things that are no-nos they're, they're sacrosanct so we have to move around those so we're moving to Monday Monday at 8pm and we're going to try and work it so that people can join well obviously people can join in so youtube.com forward slash Empire Magazine and every week as well we're going to be doing the Empire Lockdown Movie Club where we ask one of our director chums or actor chums to choose one of their favourite movies and it's not a watch along it's not a tweet along thing this week we're going to kick off with Karn Hardy talking about arachnophobia and when I say talking about arachnophobia it's basically it's a movie club so tonight 8pm by the time you're listening to this on Friday go to youtube.com forward slash empire magazine and there you will be able to see you'll see me and Karn and a couple of other people from empire sitting down and having a nice old chatter about Arachnophobia, 30 years old this year. Fantastic, fantastic film. If you haven't seen it, now you have time, maybe, by the time you listen to this, to get a copy uh, on iTunes or Prime Video or wherever and watch it and prepare for this. So it's going to be a lot of fun and we're going to be doing one every week. Not necessarily every week at Friday at 8pm. It'll be a movable feast. But uh, keep them peeled. Keep them peeled on our socials for updates on that. And that is it now for this week's Empire Podcast. Thank you so much for listening. And thank you, of course, and goodbye to our geek queen, Helen O'Hara.
Dunno. <laughs> now he does Irish. There, there's the Irish accent. <laughs> I told you, I'm building up to it. Oh my god! It's like Helen was in the room. That's amazing. And just to be clear, this is what the two-hour build-up was for. This is what you built up to. I mean, I Jesus. can't talk. That's incredible. That is that is wild. Uh, so it is goodbye from Helen O'Hara. It is also goodbye from Amon Warman, the man of a thousand voices. All of them the same. Peace. Peace. Peace on us. Oh, I have no interest in discussing peace at this current time. <laughs> It is goodbye from the man with no accent, Ben Travis. Goodbye. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, dear Lord. And it's goodbye from me. I'm off to get some water, guys, because I don't know about you, but I'm thirsty as fuck. (laughs) Thanks for listening. See you next week. Bye. Bye.